Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. The life of Ken Gibson, Newark's first black mayor and the first black mayor of a major northeastern city, is being celebrated today. Gibson died Friday at the age of 86. WNYC's Rebecca Ibarra looks back at his legacy. At least 24 persons are killed. More than 1,800 wounded, some 1,400 arrested. In the summer of 1967, civil unrest erupted in Newark, sparked by years of systemic racism and black disenfranchisement. What followed in the months and years after reflected the changing political tide in majority black cities across the country. A wave of black activism emerged. In Newark, black leaders were set on changing the face of the city's largely Irish and Italian leadership. It paid off in 1970. The mayor-elect is 38-year-old civil engineer Kenneth Gibson. While local black power groups and civil rights activists played a pivotal role in getting Gibson elected, his first campaign manager, Junius Williams, says Gibson's style didn't match the revolutionary rhetoric of many of his supporters. He was slow and deliberate, sometimes to a fault. But Williams says it was Gibson's qualities as a moderate that helped him get elected in a city scarred by the unrest of 1967. Ken Gibson was probably the only person who ran at that time who could help heal some of the racial wounds made obvious by that rebellion. Gibson became a figure of national consequence. His victory made the front page of the New York Times, and he graced the cover of Newsweek. He ran twice and lost a bid to be the Democratic nominee for governor, and he ultimately served four terms in City Hall until 1986 when he was defeated by South Ward Councilman Sharp James. James remembers his former rival as a mentor and a friend. He raised the bar of expectation that many of us, the former sons and daughters of slaves could dream great dreams. You can't beat that. 
But Gibson's life was not without controversy. He was the subject of several investigations, and in 2002, he pled guilty to income tax evasion. In a 2005 interview with The Times, Gibson said his proudest accomplishment was reducing Newark's high rates of infant and maternal mortality. In a statement, current Mayor Raz Baraka said Gibson paved the way for every major African-American elected official in this state and many places around the country. Rebecca Ibarra, WNYC News. Around the world, poor diets are linked to more deaths than smoking or drug use. That's the conclusion of a study just published in the Lancet Medical Journal. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports the research finds that 11 million deaths a year are tied to what people eat. Researchers analyzed people's diets in 195 countries around the globe. They used survey data, as well as sales and household expenditure data, to try to capture what people eat. Then they estimated the impact of diets on the risk of death from diseases including heart disease, diet-related cancers, and diabetes. Here's study author Ashkan Afshin of the University of Washington. This study shows that unhealthy diet is the leading risk factor for deaths in the majority of the countries of the world. It's kind of a stunning thought, given the risks of smoking or drug use, this idea that poor diet may top them all. So big picture, what do people eat or not eat that's so bad? For starters, many parts of the globe are awash in salty snacks and treats made of refined carbohydrates, as well as sugary drinks. And the largest number of diet-related deaths are tied to this. Too much sodium, too much sugar, and not enough whole grains, fruits, or vegetables. The countries that do best at fending off diet-related diseases include Japan, Israel, France, and Spain. And Afshin says they all have one thing in common, a pattern of eating close to the Mediterranean diet. This includes lots of fruits, vegetables, nuts, and healthy oils, including olive oil and omega-3s from fish. At a time when there's debate here in the U.S. about who should qualify for government food assistance, it's worth noting that many people here and around the globe struggle to afford healthy foods. But let's just say for argument's sake that tomorrow everyone on the planet began to fill their plates with fruits and vegetables. What would happen? Evan Frazier of the University of Guelph in Canada says we would run out. He says globally we produce too many starchy foods, too much sugar and too much fat but not enough produce. At a global level, we have this mismatch between what we should be eating and what we actually are producing. Which is another big hurdle when it comes to nudging people towards healthier diets. Alison Aubrey, NPR News. See, we're getting ready to be put in a real trap with this legalization of marijuana. So everybody, every black person can be unemployed and then they can sit in their corner and get high on marijuana with whatever they decide to put in it. And people won't be asking for jobs and being determined that they're going to get jobs and going to get an education. No, everybody can start getting high on marijuana because somebody said it's medicinal and it's legal. What about? So we better beware. 
What about the people who say the legalization of marijuana is fighting against racism because you have so many black people who are unjustly incarcerated as a result of racist enforcement of these drug laws? So this would be a good thing and it would keep black people out of greater confinement. No, we can we can do it by stop using and selling drugs to one another. See, if I'm not using drugs, then I can't be incarcerated for drugs. And I see so many males, young males in my practice who have become psychotic, almost never to return to normal from marijuana use because you don't know what's in it. You don't know how it's been genetically altered. Again, everything has to be put in the context of a power dynamic system of racism and white supremacy. Legal recreational cannabis isn't coming to New York and New Jersey, at least not right away, at least not for a few months. But lawmakers in both states, after pushing back their deadlines, uh, now hope to have enough time to swing votes in favor of legalization probably in the next three months, they hope. So while they are working on that, we are taking this moment in time to take a very deep look at what's happening when states that legalize um, do legalize with a three-week series we're calling Reefer Managed. Every weekday from now through Friday, April 19th, we are examining various critical parts of this issue around legalization from how cannabis works to whether it's addictive and continuing on to look at the history of criminalization, how to implement equitable policies in states that do legalize, followed by a national call-in to cap off the series on Saturday for 20. Now, this week, our focus is on pot and public health. And we stay there for episode three of Reefer Managed right now. And in the recent flood of positive coverage for cannabis, one book this year stood out because it took a stand in opposition to cannabis legalization, citing psychosis and violent crime as a result um, as the central reason. So joining me now to discuss his research into an argument for how cannabis may contribute to increased risks for mental illness and violence is Alex Berenson, former reporter for the New York Times and author of the book, Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Alex, welcome to WNYC. I, I want to thank you so much for having me on, Brian. And, you know, I really mean that even more than probably any of your other guests because uh, National NPR has refused to have me on. They won't have me on to talk about this. Um, and there's a lot of sort of center-left media organizations that don't want me on, which is kind of shocking to me considering that I was a reporter for The Times for 10 years. And if you look at my body of work, I don't think anybody's going to say that I'm some flaming conservative that, I, you know, that, uh, you know, I mostly covered the uh, drug industry and I mostly wrote pretty hard stories about it. But on this issue... Uh, places like NPR, places like the Washington Post just don't want me on. So I really do appreciate it. But you do say in the beginning of the book, this is not a balanced book. So why take this stance now? Well, I think that for, uh, you know, for 20 years, uh, legalization advocates and a lot of people in the media have sold a narrative about cannabis that is simply untrue um, and ignores the science that has come out in the last 20 years. Uh, I didn't approach this issue with any 
preconceived notions. My wife is a forensic psychiatrist. Uh, she's the one who got me interested in this. But when I started looking at the research, I was shocked at how strong it was. And frankly, even since the book has come out, even in just the last couple of months, there have been major studies uh, backing this link between cannabis and uh, severe mental illness. Um, your book begins to shape its argument by pointing to the fact that both India and Mexico made cannabis legal for Mexico. That was about a century illegal, ago. Illegal. I- illegal. Oh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. Mexico did. Can- uh, I meant to say illegal, of yes. course. Um, um, but um, why, why those two countries, and especially from so long ago when a lot of evidence was anecdotal? Because you're talking about things that happened a long time ago, sure. right? So, so, by the way, Mexico uh, made cannabis illegal in uh, 1920. India did not. Um, but the reason I actually talk about those two countries, it was fascinating to me. There's something called the Indian Hemp Drugs Commission in 1893, um, which was really uh, an amazing uh, scientific work. Uh, where people uh, people really looked at uh, at cannabis and its effects and how it was grown. It's a it's a six volume you know multi thousand page report. You can say you can say what you like about colonizers, but they produce a lot of paper. Um, and what was fascinating was the reason this happened was that the the uh, the British army doctors who were running uh, what were called insane asylums back then noted a link between cannabis and mental illness. And that's what got the British interested in this. And they produced this fascinating report, which, by the way, cannabis legalizers say, well, this report was produced and, uh, you know, the, the commission looked at all the evidence and they voted to keep cannabis legal. And that happens to be true. What they don't say, and to me, this is a perfect example of, of the way uh, people sort of tell half the story about this is what they don't say is two of the three Indian members of the commission, the commission had seven members and four were British, so it was going to do what the British wanted to do. But two of the three Indian members said, when we look at the data, we see that high-potency cannabis, which these days, what they were talking about was, let's say, 3 to 10% THC, uh, hashish, and what they called ganja, um, that was probably dangerous to people's mental health. And only very, very low-potency cannabis should have kept, been kept legal. So to me, this was, this was fascinating. 125 years ago, people who looked at cannabis and looked at the science said, and this was, this was, this was not just a bunch of stories. This was, uh, to, the, to the extent possible at the time, this was a scientific study. Two of the three Indian commissioners said, we think that cannabis at higher levels of potency is dangerous. In your book, you write about schizophrenia and psychosis, but those are different things. Sure. Can you parse the difference for us with respect to their relevance to this topic? Sure. So, so this is a complicated issue, um, and, and, and stop me if I go on too long. Psychosis can be temporary. Okay, psychosis is sort of the, 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 the manifestation, the positive manifestation, as psychiatrists call it, of schizophrenia. So you have hallucinations, you have delusions, you have paranoia. You have these intrusive thoughts that you can't control. Um, now, that can go away or come back. If it lasts for a long time and other uh, organic factors or, or drug use or, you know, uh, severe, severe trauma, if psychiatrists can rule those things out and they say, we don't know what's causing this, we're going to give you a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Usually it could be bipolar disorder with psychosis. Then when you so, – so, so, so schizophrenia – is sort of long-lasting psychosis. However, schizophrenia also has what psychiatrists call negative symptoms, and that's depression, apathy. 
just sort of an inability to organize your life and get out of bed, you know, and and function. And I'll never forget uh, Tom Insel, who at the time was the uh, the the head of the National Institutes of Mental Health, saying to me, this was in 2006 when I was a reporter for the Times writing a story about an antipsychotic drug called Zyprexa, saying to me, you know, people can get through life with some pretty strange ideas if they can get out of bed and go to work. And so, so psychosis and schizophrenia are different. And it's the easiest way to think about it is that psychosis is both a symptom of schizophrenia and, and it can be temporary or permanent. By the way, in Europe, just to just to tell you, just to go one more step on this uh, on this d- d- difference in nomenclature, there are psychiatrists, a lot of psychiatrists now, who believe that schizophrenia should be thrown out as a diagnosis because because there are people out there who recover from schizophrenia, they get a diagnosis and they recover on their own or they recover with drugs, and we don't know why. And sometimes we say those people were never schizophrenic to begin with. So in a so, minute, I want to ask yeah. you what that has to do with. Marijuana legalization, yes. but uh, but I want to go back to your Mexico story for yes. a minute, um, because you've probably seen the pushback. I have <laughs> to your contention about Mexico um, in Vox by uh, the writer Herman Lopez, yes. who says that you cite for your Mexico evidence the book Homegrown Marijuana and the Origins of Mexico's Drug War yes. by University of Cincinnati historian Isaac Campos, and this says. Um, Herman contacted Campos, yes. and he said he read two photocopy pages from your book in which he cited, and based on that, he said that you, quote, pretty badly misrepresented his argument and that it's not at all clear that marijuana use alone actually caused the violent outbreaks, even if that was a widely held belief in Mexico back in those days. So, so I, Isaac Campos doesn't say that I misquote his book because I don't. I quoted his book accurately. The quote uh, in Vox is pretty badly misrepresented. Right. So people say they were t- their quotes were taken out of context when you quote them accurately in ways that they don't like. That's what I did with Isaac Campos. I think Isaac Campos' book is great. I think it's very interesting. I think he did some fascinating research. And what he found was that in Mexico at the time, in the early 20th century, people in Mexico, not in the United States, in Mexico, connected marijuana and mental illness. It is also clear from the book, from many passages in the book, that, uh, that, that, that Professor Campos knows that there is a connection between marijuana and psychosis, and he says it explicitly. Um, to me, this is, a, this is a great example of what the ideology around marijuana is. So, so um, Isaac Campos comes up with some really fascinating findings. And then instead of recognizing what they mean, he writes a book where he, I mean, he draws on them. But then when I say, hey, look, this is really interesting. In, you know, in Mexico in 1910, this is what they were saying. Not that I read Spanish. I'm just, I'm just drawing on your book. He says, well, that's not exactly, you know, that's not really what I meant. It's like, well, this is what your research found. Well, what he apparently told or what Vox uh, is quoting from his book is that marijuana was used in quote Mexico's most margin- marginal environments, especially prisons and military barracks, both extremely unhospitable and violent environments. Uh, that's a compost quote to the Vox writer, and 
Then the Vox writer Herman Lopez goes on to say it really was widely believed at the time that marijuana caused insanity and violence, right. which may have created a self-fulfilling prophecy since such behavior was essentially deemed as typical while stoned. Pair that with the fact that marijuana really can cause paranoia as anxiety and you get some bad stories. But is marijuana to blame? The evidence is it's a more complicated story than Berenson's one-sided portrayal, says Herman Lopez. Well- what did what did you just read? Is marijuana to blame in some cases? I'm not saying that marijuana causes every case of paranoia or every case of, of murder in the United States. That would be a crazy thing to say. And I'm not saying that uh, that if we eliminated marijuana tomorrow, the United States would, right. you know, crime rate would be would be right. half what it is. That's but his, not, that's his, not true either. His argument is that there isn't a lot of scientific evidence there in those old stories from Mexico. What there is is correlation in some marginal environments where probably a lot of people had mental health problems and a lot of people used marijuana. Um, That's true. And so to say marijuana causes violence and psychosis is a a scientific stretch. Uh, No. To say marijuana causes psychosis is not a scientific stretch. To say it causes violence is certainly more controversial. Um, the, the the Mexico aspect of the book is two pages. I, it's literally the first two pages of, of the book. book. Of yes, of my book. Um, I do not say that that's why we should consider marijuana as a you know psychomimetic or psychogenic substance. Um, let, let me let me. I sort of as I tend to do when I talk about psychosis and schizophrenia, I got lost in the weeds a little bit. Sure. Let me let me pull back and and say it as clearly as I can. Sure. Marijuana unquestionably causes psychosis. It causes temporary psychosis all the time. Okay, if you if you smoke and you get really paranoid, and you know, and in some cases you'll actually start to have uh, auditory hallucinations. Let's say, and you wind up in the ER, you're going to get a diagnosis of cannabis-induced psychosis. Whether or not that's what the doctor tells you, that's what's going to be on your ICD code. Okay, that happens all the time in the United States. Whether or not, and and that is such a known risk that dispensaries say, well, this strain won't get you as paranoid, which, by the way, it's a bunch of nonsense how they define it. It's all about the THC levels in marijuana. But but, but that's a known risk. Now, the question is, can cannabis cause permanent psychosis, a.k.a. schizophrenia? And I would say we are not quite as certain about that as we are that tobacco can cause lung, can cause lung cancer, but we are well on the way to proving that marijuana can cause permanent psychosis. I'm going to give you one more piece of pushback from the Vox article. Um, uh, Again, the writer, Herman Lopez, says, could have been sympathetic to your argument and has given up pot um, themselves because of husband's paranoia while high, (laughs) but says, instead, your book constantly conflates correlation with causation. And worse, the writer says you mischaracterized the National Academies of Sciences report on the link between marijuana and psychosis as declaring the issue settled. Lopez writes they explicitly said it was not settled and that the link and that the link between marijuana and psychosis, quote, may be multidirectional and complex, unquote. In other words, psychosis may have people turning to pot for relief or other interactions, so directionality not proven. Sure. So I wrote a you know sixty five thousand word bo- book on basically this issue, right? The, the whole center of the book is about how scientists work to tease out correlation and causation. And you know I, there are literally, I, literally, I don't know, but ten thousand times since the book has come out, people have said to me or tweeted at me, "You don't understand correlation and causation." And each time they say it, as if I should be surprised, like they are saying something new to me. We cannot yet prove, 
okay, that marijuana causes permanent psychosis, that causes schizophrenia. But when you look at epidemiology, you 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 try to say, is there a reasonable case here based on a variety of factors? Is there a dose-response relationship? Is there a challenge-de-challenge relationship? In other words, if people who have schizophrenia and have psychosis, that psychosis is under control, they, cont- they start using again, their psychosis gets worse again. Are there analogs with stronger substances? Well, yes, we know that people who use synthetic cannabinoids like K2 and spice can get psychotic very quickly and very severely. Um, is there, are there studies from multiple countries over multiple time periods? Yes. Is there a plausible biological mechanism here? I would say that one is harder because not because we don't know how marijuana affects the brain broadly, but because we don't know how psychosis develops in the brain broadly. You, you can't diagnose schizo, uh, uh, schizophrenia off a brain scan. You diagnose it clinically. So I don't say that there's a 100% certainty right now that marijuana causes well, – I, I say marijuana causes schizophrenia, okay? I do say that in the book. If you're going to say to me, are we 100 percent there? Have we proven this? I would say define proven. Is it 98 percent? Is it 95 percent? Is it 90 percent? And by the way, at what point does the risk become so clear and so obvious that we need to start warning people and making public policy decisions on this? This book, okay, this book has been characterized as an – as an anti-legalization book. It's really not about legalization at all. It's about health and science. And the reason it's called Tell Your Children, by the way, is not just because the original title of Reefer Madness was Tell Your Children, and I knew that I was going to get this kind of heat, although I didn't quite know how hot it would get. It's also because there are parents out there right now uh, by you know by the tens of thousands all over this country who are struggling with their kids, and hundreds of thousands, problematic marijuana use, and I wanted to give them some facts. And we haven't talked about that at all. We haven't talked about the culture that is promoting the use of this drug. And in some cases, telling parents that it's a good idea to use this drug. Parents of children, young children, that is an absolutely insane choice. So so by, one last point on National Academy of Medicine report, Please. and then I'll let you go. I quoted directly from it, okay? My quotes are accurate, and they're from the book. I'm sorry, they're from the report. And the, and the National Academy knew very well what it was saying when it said that there's a substantial that there's substantial evidence that marijuana use uh, can lead to the development of schizophrenia and other psychoses, they drew a bright line between. They didn't say marijuana use can cause uh, uh, that there's substantial evidence that marijuana use can cause depression or anxiety. They said substantial evidence for psychosis. They put psychosis and schizophrenia in its own basket. They knew what they were doing. They threw in some scientific caveats because, yes, it's not 100 percent proven right now. It says it may be multidirectional yeah, and complex, that's, that's the right. relationship. That's, that's, that's right. That's right. That's, that is the caveat language deep in it. The top-line conclusion is what I said it is. Or you can say you can say what you like about colonizers, but they produce a lot of paper. Tattoos, henna, piercing, all forms of body art. These are art forms. But what if that art could also tell you where the person is from in the world? Ritual scarring is common in many African tribes, and soon it could help many African descendants figure out where their families came from. Researchers are delving into archives for clues, archives that some former colonial countries are struggling to maintain. Here's the world's Rupa Shinoy. Abu Kuroma is the archivist in training at the National Archives of Sierra Leone. He'll remain the archivist in training until one of the two senior archivists retire. Yeah, that is it. (laughs) That is how it is done. When Kuroma started at the archives in 2004, Sierra Leone was emerging from civil war. 
He was fresh out of high school, and his parents had died, so he needed the small salary badly. And Kuroma was fascinated by the archives. They date back to 1788 and the first treaty regional leaders made with British colonists. Most times when I'm in the archives alone, I decided that, oh, one day I want to be a professor, then I would start writing books. The archives spanned the years when Africans were forced into slavery and of the era afterward. Colonial administrators filled books with careful descriptions of each enslaved African who was liberated. Sometimes the unwritten are so bad. Some descriptions hint at scary, intriguing stories, like how all the women in one ship had burn marks on their breasts. Kuroma doesn't see those stories in any history books. We have read books, we have read books, and we have not seen the original things. When they come to the archives, they see the original text, people become amazed. Amazed at the sheer amount of information. In his 15 years at the archives, Abu Kuroma says he's received a lot of visitors, academics and researchers from Europe and North America. So much of them that we are coming. More and more of them every year, rushing to catch up with history. Researchers realized technology had become cheap and accessible enough to digitize documents and put information into databases. There was one basic question researchers wanted to answer first. For a long time, historians have struggled to estimate the size of the transatlantic slave trade. So the first big database researchers finished revealed an answer. It's estimated that at least 12.5 million people were abducted from Africa and sold as slaves. As many as 10.7 million survived. Inevitably, if you're descended from one of the 10.7 million people who survived the Middle Passage, there's going to be a point where there is no more data. Katrina Kiefer says that's what academics wanted to know next, how to trace enslaved Africans back to their home village or tribe. She recalls thinking about that when she was in grad school. If we knew where enslaved Africans came from, their descendants wouldn't have to have a family history that began with slavery. And I remember sitting in the classroom and thinking, but the answer's right there. <laughs> it's, it's literally right there on people's faces. People's faces. That's what Kiefer focused on. During a teenage obsession with dressing goth, Kiefer had developed a fascination with the physical ways people mark themselves to show identity. That led her to see something others didn't when she looked at colonial British records. Their descriptions, in many cases, include drawings of facial scars made by Africans to show their origins and identities, which, after they were enslaved, served to represent where they came from, what village or ethnic group. Initially, people kind of blinked at me. Um, there was a lot of, well, yes, of course. Oh, oh my God. Oh, we never thought of that. Oh, why didn't we think of that? Kiefer's now an adjunct professor of history and cultural studies at Canada's Trent University. She's using information in the Sierra Leone archives to develop a computer program that can recognize and catalog the scars. We're hoping to essentially allow people to feel a greater connection to their ancestors and a greater realization of what their true origins are. But then again, a scar can only tell you so much. Any one data point, like a scar, is great. It's really important, but it's only one data point. That's why the SCAR database is meant to feed into a massive new information hub that's being created by a team led by Dean Rayberger at Michigan State University. In doing the project, we found a number of institutions and places that are holding data that people didn't even know about. The project, named Enslaved, will attempt to gather in one place, a website, 
research about the historic slave trade. Until now, that information's only been in books or museums or scattered in corners of the Internet, in different languages, hidden behind broken links. The Enslaved Project is standardizing all that information so it'll be searchable and accessible. It's the first time that this could happen at this scale for the amount of funds we have. There are critics who point out that the information being gathered is from the point of view of enslavers and colonialists. But institutions around the world are participating. Harvard's contributing a database drawn from 1,500 biographies edited by Henry Louis Gates Jr. and others. Executive editor Stephen Niven says previously the information was behind a paywall. The print set cost about $1,200. The Enslaved Project is supposed to go online next year, and Niven expects the sudden influx of accessible information to revolutionize the way people learn about slavery and teach it. By using biographies and by using a large number of biographies, we can tell complex stories, local stories, to get a grip of what is hard history of, you know, the, the forced migration of, you know, 12 million people and then systematic exploitation for several hundred years in the Americas. But that's still just scratching the surface. In Sierra Leone, archivist Abu Kuroma says there's a lot of unexplored history left, history that's at risk of being lost. The original documents in the Sierra Leone archives are being kept in buildings with broken windows, frequent power failures, and no air conditioning. The papers crumble easily. And most of the pages, if you turn them that much, it will break. Many of the researchers who visit try to help with money for improvements or to digitize the papers. But Kuroma feels like those efforts usually just sputter out. They will promise to help the archives. They will do their best to help the archives. But it's normally not enough. We want to keep these things alive because other people have volunteered to keep them alive before us. Kuroma worries that no one will volunteer to care for the archives after him, since archivists in training earn so little. He believes for the true history of slavery to survive and be told, the original evidence must be preserved and protected. For The World, I'm Rupa Shumar. Black babies cost less for those who aren't familiar, a doula is kind of like a birth coach. Unlike midwives or nurses who deal with the clinical aspects of childbirth, doulas are there to provide emotional and educational support to mothers. She's our primary focus. That's Cindy McMillan. She may need her foot rub. We're right there. She may need some understanding and some clarification on certain things that was explained to her in a doctor's appointment. We don't give our personal opinion. We give evidence-based information. She can make the decision up on her own. She's a doula and director of marketing and education for the organization Sistas Caring for Sistas. McMillan says she's even had a patient request to belly dance in the delivery room. In every contraction, she would pause and then go right back at it. You know, it helped keep her mind off of things that was going on. We had to mute the lights down low and she felt safe in her space. It actually did have some benefit for her, and I was there right alongside her. Essentially, the doulas with SC4S are there to advocate for the expectant mother and make sure her wishes are respected, so that ultimately the patient has a successful and positive birth experience. And that's important, because for many women of color, childbirth can be traumatic. Nationwide CDC data shows maternal mortality rates among black women are disproportionately higher, with 40 deaths per 100,000 live births. That's compared to 12.4 among white women. 
Infant mortality rates among black women similarly paint a bleak picture. In Buncombe County, black babies are three times more likely to die in that first year of life. That's according to a study from the Mountain Area Health Center, where Amanda Brickhouse-Murphy is a nurse midwife. The fact that racism plays a role in that, that just set everyone on fire in wanting to address specifically the disparity in infant mortality. She says local providers spurred into action after a women's health conference a few years ago that addressed the topic of racial bias in the delivery room. With the assistance of a grant from the Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation, Mayhek and the organization Mothering Asheville helped launch Sistas Caring for Sistas about three years ago. Six women completed their doula training in 2016. Joaquina Norris is one of them. When we're on the medical team or when we're working with the medical team, it helps us bridge the gap between you can feel comfortable with asking for things and knowing that you're going to get the same quality of care as you would if it was someone else of of a different color. Nora says part of her duty is to help expectant mothers come up with a birth plan and make sure there's follow-through in the delivery room. In their moment after they have the baby, sometimes they forget and say, hey, remember, this is what it is that you wanted. This was what was in your birth plan. And then they will say it. She says she's delivered about 40 babies so far. One of them was born just four weeks ago. Do you want to talk? And say hello. Jared Baton rocks her newborn baby boy, Jahir. This new mom is proud to say she delivered her son naturally without an epidural. But her decision was met with some resistance. Baton has high blood pressure. Because of that, they were kind of ready to do like more interventions that I wasn't really ready for. Baton says the medical team recommended she take Pitocin to strengthen contractions. But her doula, she calls her Kina, was there to make sure they stuck with her birth plan. Norris also helped by pushing on areas where Baton felt contractions. She brought in like a massager to massage my back. It was a blessing. <laughs> and like a heating pad and stuff to where I didn't, we didn't have to introduce medicine. Or It felt really good that I had Kena in there because, I mean, it's somebody familiar with my skin color. And after 22 hours in labor, Norris stayed afterward to help with breastfeeding. Baton says her new baby boy latched immediately. Because I labored for 22 hours, and the only thing I had was a grape during the whole 20, <laughs> 22 hours. So I felt like, man, he was hungry. Baton represents one of 77 successful births so far, but that's not where the relationship stops. The doulas with Sistas Caring for Sistas stay connected to the mothers they've served, helping them access resources like child care. That's why they say their work is life-giving, life-saving, and life-changing. I'm Cass Harrington. In Tennessee, well over 100,000 children have been cut from state health insurance in the last few years. That works out to one in every eight. These were children enrolled in two state programs, TenCare, the state's Medicaid program, and Cover Kids, which covers low-income families that make too much money to qualify for Medicaid. Reporter Brett Kelman broke this story for the Tennessean. He's here with us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. How did this issue come to your attention? There are some social justice advocates in Tennessee who have been sounding the alarm on this for quite some time. Eventually, they bent my ear enough that I went and pulled the enrollment data and checked it and realized that they were completely right. In both of these programs, 
there had been this just massive dive of enrollment over the past year or two. What did you find was the explanation? Why were these children losing coverage? What the state of Tennessee has said is that either their families are no longer eligible, most likely because they now make too much money, or they didn't properly respond to renewal paperwork that is sent out once a year to make sure they're still eligible. And if you don't return that paperwork, you are automatically disenrolled. You heard from lots of parents who didn't know that they'd lost coverage until they took their sick kids to the doctor. Can you tell us one of those stories? So I actually heard from a family uh, yesterday after the story came out who described uh, their child who was born with a birth defect in her legs that prevented her from walking and was able to get surgery on one leg through TenCare and had scheduled surgery on the second leg, but on the eve of doing it, discovered they didn't have TenCare anymore and were now looking at a bill that was several tens of thousands of dollars. And I think that sort of illustrates how abruptly these families have lost this coverage and how dumbstruck they are when it happens. When you reached out to TenCare and Cover Kids, what was their explanation? Well, their explanation was largely that this is mostly normal. There were several years where they sort of deprioritized taking people out of this program and allowed families that they say were no longer eligible to stay in. And now they have restarted uh, disenrolling people and expected a significant number of children to be cut from enrollment. I think there are still very large questions about how many of those families were removed because they are no longer eligible and how many were removed because they did not properly do paperwork. What's your response to people who say, look, this is the responsibility of the parents. What's so difficult about filling out some forms? Well, I have seen the packet, for one, and it's not easy. And two, even if tens of thousands of parents drop the ball, it's not the kid's fault. Is that really what we want? Is a state where lots and lots of kids don't get health insurance to which they are legally entitled because their family didn't fill out paperwork or the state sent that paperwork to the wrong address or it got lost in the mail or any of many possible procedural errors that could have happened somewhere in this paperwork. Your story came out earlier this week, and the governor has since acknowledged this reporting. What's been the fallout so far? Governor Bill Lee has said he is going to examine 10 care and covered kids and make sure the families who are entitled to this coverage are getting it. Also, the mayor of Chattanooga and some social justice groups in the state have begun publicizing that they are going to help families appeal or reapply because they believe there are large numbers of families in Tennessee who are entitled to this coverage and just need a little bit of guidance on how to get it back. That's reporter Brett Kelman. He covers health care for the Tennessean. Thank you so much for speaking with us. I'm thrilled to do it. I don't it. want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, um, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact. Um, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Neither clouds or driving rain this way, guys. could keep Issaquah High School students inside today. Yeah, 
They staged a walkout to protest a racist post on social media this week. The image shows two students holding a sign that says, if I was black, I'd be picking cotton, but instead, I pick you. The student that made it has since apologized. It's one thing to look down upon racially charged comments, but it's another thing to be the person that it is targeted towards. To anyone who relies on the argument of it is just a joke or condones and participates in slurs and stereotypes to lower another individual's value, I only have one thing to say to you. Your time is up. Today, students condemned that message. We are more than a poster. We are more than a tweet. And offered their own instead. It can often feel like the burden to speak up against racial injustices lies on those they are targeted towards. But the people who saw what happened and chose not to stay silent have truly used their power to strive towards a difference. Do we agree that students should be able to walk down the hallway without hearing racial or derogatory slurs? Yes! Excellent. Then if we overhear someone using one, we must have the courage to speak up against it. They want people to know that this sign at first I was disgusted does not represent them. Being one of the few black males here at this school, I knew that it'd be very important to have my face on this and have also the support of my friends and family at this school. And they want to be remembered for this, speaking up for what's right. We are Issaquah, and we are the change. Michael Crow, King 5 News. Carry me back to old Virginia. There's where the cotton and the corn and taters grow. There's where the birds warble sweet in the springtime. There's where the old darkest heart and long to go. There's where I labored so hard for old Massa Day after day in the field of yellow corn No place on earth do I love more sincerely Than old Virginia, the state where I was born A couple of months ago, Virginia's Democratic Governor Ralph Northam had used an underground tunnel from his executive mansion to his office to avoid the media. The governor faced widespread calls to step down after reports surfaced in February of a racist photo on his medical school yearbook page. Now he's once again appearing in public alongside some of the very lawmakers who called for his resignation, and he's looking forward to his remaining three years in office. WCVE's Ben Pavier has this report from Richmond. Well, good afternoon. I'm Ralph Northam, and thank you all for being with us. And Virginia Governor Ralph Northam stopped by a community meeting in Richmond. Northam said he was there to listen, but he also had something to say to three black lawmakers in the room. Thank you all for doing what you do. I, I remind people this is not the easiest time to be in public service, but it's the most important time. Lamont Bagby manages the center where the meeting was held. He took the time to help set up for the governor earlier that afternoon. He's also a Democratic House member and head of the Legislative Black Caucus. That's the same caucus that called the yearbook photo reprehensible and led calls for Northam to resign. I asked Bagby what had changed. At this point, the governor has decided he's not going to step down, and we don't have the luxury of going into our corners and not working with the governor. Northam has now resumed a busy schedule of public speeches and stops around the state. He's been joined by lawmakers from both parties, nearly all of whom called for him to resign. It's a remarkable change from February when he was hardly seen or heard from. 
At first, it was hard to imagine that Northam could have done worse. Stephen Farnsworth, a professor at the University of Mary Washington, says Northam's early stumbles fell by the wayside after Democratic Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax was accused of sexual assault and Attorney General Mark Herring admitted to wearing blackface. The pressure for Northam to resign basically dissipates when it becomes clear that the alternatives aren't much better. Fairfax is still trying to prove his innocence. He and Herring have mostly stayed out of the public eye. But not everyone's satisfied with Northam either. Jay Johnson is a retiree who sits on the board with Virginia Organizing, a grassroots progressive group. But is he going to really do anything else? No, I doubt it. He's going to set up a commission and, you know, whatever, whatever. That is not really putting himself out there. And as the legislative session drew to a close, Reverend James Kelly of the Virginia chapter of the NAACP reiterated that organization's calls for the governor to step down. We always need to take into account the sincerity of an apology. In Northam's case, a clear apology followed by his resignation would have been more credible. Instead, Northam's carried on. He's notched several legislative wins since the scandal broke, including an end to the practice of suspending driver's licenses due to unpaid court fines. He says that issue is about equity, a word that's always at the tip of the governor's tongue these days. We've had a great first year. Uh, We have a little bit less than three years to go, but uh, we'll continue to work on a lot of the issues that we've worked on, but certainly refocus uh, on a lot of the, the race and equity issues as well. It's unclear whether Northam will be a factor in this November's elections, elections Democrats hope to use to take control of the legislature for the first time since 1993. If they pull it off, Northam could find himself with more power than he's ever had before. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. You know, First Ladies usually have a cause, and you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt, and we need to teach them how to talk to each other, how to treat each other, and uh, to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice, since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. Facebook was once praised for spreading free speech values, but with the company's ban on white extremist content, we have reached an inflection point. The world is pushing back with different values, which are now being imported by Facebook to the U.S. Here's NPR's Arthi Shahani. The worldwide ban goes into effect this week, and the move by Facebook, which is wrapped up in the U.S. culture wars, is actually the result of international pressure forcing the company's hand. Facebook says under the new rules, you cannot post in a celebratory way on its newsfeed or Instagram, I'm a white nationalist, but you can post, I'm a black nationalist. Some Americans find this outrageous or ridiculous. John Spear, self-described libertarian Facebook user in Central California. I feel like everyone should be able to have freedom of expression, even if they're an idiot. There's a lot of idiots in the world who say a lot of stupid things. We don't need to protect people from that. What racism is? Who can be racist? It's a debate that's getting louder in the U.S. Spear believes that while Facebook claims to be a neutral platform, the company is taking the liberal side. Uh, I know that the current popular mode of thought is that only white people can be racist, but I I don't agree with that. I I grew up as a minority white person in a largely Latino community, and believe me, I know what racism feels like. Facebook is an NPR sponsor. According to Facebook leaders and civil rights advocates, this issue is not about speech, but safety. It's a well-documented fact. 
white extremists around the world are radicalizing men online, luring them into organized hate groups, and promoting lone wolf acts of terror. White supremacists are as much a global movement and interconnected, in other words, sharing ideas, sharing money, sharing tactics, sharing propaganda, visiting each other, etc., etc., just like you see with Islamic extremists. Heidi Byrick with the Southern Poverty Law Center has been making this point to Facebook for years. Dylan Roof, who murdered nine people in a church basement in Charleston, got radicalized through Google search. The white nationalist rally in Charlottesville that left three dead and dozens injured was organized on a Facebook page. The Christchurch shooter in New Zealand used Facebook Live, an incredibly powerful broadcast tool. Byrick says the company's latest move is in reaction to the disaster in New Zealand and pressure from law enforcement, particularly those in Europe who are worried about white extremist gunmen. That realization is dawning on the intelligence communities worldwide, and Facebook is hearing it from them. Facebook made the unusual move of adding Christchurch massacre footage to a terrorism database that had been focused on Islamic extremism. A Facebook spokesperson says the company will continue to add white extremist content to this database, which a handful of tech giants share to censor the most violent content. Again, this is in the face of international pressure. Australia just passed a stringent bill that threatens social media employees with prison time if they don't remove violent content expeditiously. The United Kingdom is about to unveil legislation. Germany has passed tough hate speech laws that carry heavy fines. Heidi Byrick. The U.S. is behind the eight ball on this. Trump doesn't seem to be interested in these issues at all. And I think Facebook is reacting to that and in a good way, I would argue. About 90% of Facebook users are outside the U.S. Last week, Mark Zuckerberg called on governments around the world to create, in effect, a global standard for speech. That has never existed before. It's a long shot. And as Zuckerberg sees it, that's what needs to be engineered next. Arthi Shahani, NPR News. Shit, don't tell me my niggas got lost in time. My niggas are dying before their time. My niggas are serving unjust time. My niggas are dying because of time. Nipsey Hussle, a Grammy-nominated rapper, was shot to death over the weekend in Los Angeles. His death is being mourned not just because of the loss of a promising talent. It was also a blow to the African-American community in South L.A., where he had turned his life around dramatically and was working to improve opportunity for others. He's the focus of our arts and culture segment tonight, Canvas. Nipsey Hussle was riding a career high. Born Ermias Ashkadon, the West Coast rapper's debut album, Victory Lap, won widespread praise and a Grammy nomination last year for Best Rap Album. As a teen, he belonged to a gang called the Rollin' Sixties. His music drew on that past and how he turned his life around. Even as his star rose, Nipsey Hussle became an entrepreneur, working to revitalize the Crenshaw neighborhood of Los Angeles, where he was born and raised. Right now, we on 59th and 3rd Ave. I grew up a couple blocks from here. Last year, he partnered with the brand Puma to renovate a local elementary school's playground and basketball courts. 
Hustle was deeply involved in Destination Crenshaw, an open-air public art project in the neighborhood that begins construction this spring. Last year, the rapper opened a shared working space called Vector 90. It's designed to connect young, talented, impoverished communities with opportunities in Silicon Valley. Hustle also owns several businesses in the neighborhood where residents mourned his death overnight. What he meant to the community, if you want to look around right now, every single person that's out here, spending their time here, they're here because he spoke to them in some way, he inspired them in some way. Hustle was shot in broad daylight outside a clothing store he owned. The shooter is still at large. We do understand that we have one male black suspect, no further description at this time. That suspect is not in custody, and currently we're going to start canvassing the area talk to any witnesses, and also we're going to canvass all the local area for any video. Condolences and a sense of shock reverberated on social media. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti said, our hearts are with the loved ones of Nipsey Hussle and everyone touched by this awful tragedy. L.A. is hurt deeply each time a young life is lost to senseless gun violence. Hussle's death was also mourned in the sports world. Stephen Curry of the Golden State Warriors. Well, I got to know him last year and had a great conversation uh, about you know who he was as a person, what he what he stood for, what his message was, how he tried to inspire people. <clears throat> considering you know where he, where he grew up, you know senseless crimes that don't need to happen, especially with a guy that was doing what he was doing. Hustle was to have met today with the Los Angeles Police Chief and Police Commissioner to talk about ways to stop gang violence. David Dennis Jr. joins us to discuss Hustle's life and legacy. He's a writer for the pop culture website, The Undefeated. David, thanks so much for joining us. Help us, explain to us Hustle's place in the music industry. He is uh, an icon. He revolutionized uh, the industry uh, probably, you know, over the last 10 years. In, in 2013, while everybody was releasing uh, free music on the Internet, he released albums for $100 a piece. Uh, betting on himself, banking on himself. A lot of people thought he was crazy for doing that. Jay-Z bought in. He bought $10,000 worth of copies of the album, and it really launched him uh, into a new stratosphere. And he became as known for his business acumen, uh, his community service, as he did for his music. And, and talk about that, his community services. We heard in the tape piece he really did a lot to try to uh, revitalize uh, his, home, his home neighborhood in Los Angeles. Yeah, he was really uh, the dream of what you would want from any celebrity, really, but especially a black celebrity in America who was able to transcend uh, the environment and the neighborhood that he was raised in. He banked on himself. He made a ton of money, and it, it, it seemed like every dollar he made, he put back into the community uh, that raised him. He built Vector 90, which was a workspace uh, in the area. He uh, invested in real estate. Uh, the place where he was shot was outside of a store that he uh, built and owned in that Crenshaw area. He was always uh, doing what he could to pour money and resources back into that community, which is really what you would, you know, you would want from, from anybody who, uh, you know, rises to that level. And also, it, he rose to that level, but he was sort of against his own fame. He talked about uh, how people shouldn't be following celebrities. They should be following Elon Musk. They should be following Mark Zuckerberg. They should be uh, looking at other ways of success. Yeah, so he sort of went against the idea that, you know, there's a stereotype that you're, if you're from, uh, quote-unquote, the hood, you need to be a basketball player or an athlete or an entertainer. And he felt as though if he could 
you know, raise the, um, the mindset of people to go beyond that, that they can maybe, you know, be inventors, be business people. And he did that with a lot of what he was trying to build within that community. And at the same time, he didn't shy away from his past, his gang life in the past. Yeah, he, uh, you know, was an uh, inspirational tale and, and I guess now a cautionary tale. I mean, he talked about um, his gang lifestyle that he uh, came up from. But in his latest album, you know, he spoke about that, but he did a lot of speaking about, you know, how um, a lot of the things he did were not something to aspire to. What he, he felt you could aspire to is be the business person, be the community activist that he was. So he used his story to be an inspiration to, to anybody listening. What do you think is going to happen to the many projects he started in his neighborhood? I would like to think that they're going to uh, keep going. I think that, you know, through tragedy you can find um, some rays of hope and rays of light. And I think that he inspired everybody. I think that we can follow his path, and I think more people will see what he did. has brought uh, a lot of light to um, his endeavors, and I think maybe he can inspire some other celebrities and just common folk, just regular people like you and me, to go out there and uh, try to invest in our own communities and, and, and do what we can. I think that, um, you know, this can be a real galvanizing moment uh, across the country. What do you think is going to be the bigger legacy that he leaves, his music or his work in the community? Um, I think they go hand in hand, um, actually. I think that you can't talk about the work he did in the community without talking about the music that got him into that place to be so beneficial to the people around him. I think that the overall man that Nipsey Hussle was and what he represented will really be uh, his legacy, and I think it will really uh, carry us to, um, you know, perpetuating the things that he did. David Dennis, Jr. of The Undefeated, remembering the life and legacy of Nipsey Hussle. Thanks so much. Thank you. Moving toward justice, we are rising. For the first time in years, our forces are building again, cohering again, marching again. In California, an all-star roster of activists, writers, and revolutionaries are coming together, marking a new period, a time of freedom. We're not saying nor suggesting that the movement has been quiescent. No, for it hasn't been. It has fought the good fight for life and health that has had national impact in prison systems literally across the country. I'm speaking here of the state's attempt to deny treatment for hepatitis C, an affliction that touches the lives of at least some 700,000 men and women in America's crowded prisons. Our people filled courtrooms and hit the streets to demand change and antiviral treatment for hep C sufferers like me. They demanded change and made change that continues to radiate across America. A black doctor and internist from New York, Dr. Joseph Harris, took the stand and taught the world about hep C. This passionate, informed analysis of hep C demolished the DOC's obstruction to treatment and opened the door to new precedents 
for Hep C sufferers. With the help of our lawyers, Brett Grody and Robert Boyle, established a new legal precedent that has helped thousands of imprisoned Hep C sufferers all across America live longer and healthier lives. Your support made it possible. Now, in California, we are continuing the march towards freedom. For soon, you will hear from some friends of our movement on the steps to come. People like Angela Davis, who herself years ago faced multiple death penalty charges until she was freed. Groundbreaking she is, an abolitionist and an anti-incarceration scholar and founder of Critical Resistance, a group that continues to fight against the prison industrial complex. Alice Walker, a literary lion and womanist, feminist, activist, and icon. Judith Ritter, Widener University Law School professor and author of several law review articles on criminal justice. Pam Africa, Moves Minister of Confrontation and founder of the International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Jeff Mackler, editor of Socialist Action Newspaper and radical activist who has worked lifelong on behalf of people's movements and struggles. From anti-imperial war and to the historic Lynn Stewart fight for freedom to our own. Professor Eula Taylor, African-American studies professor at UC Santa Barbara, who has taught prisoners at Lompoc. And Stephen Bingham. Remember the young dude who the cops said smuggled a weapon into George Jackson when he was in Soledad? That's the dude. He spent 13 years in France before he came back, went to trial, and was acquitted. Attorney recently retired, Stephen Bingham. Voices of resistance, of rebellion, of new life, and of freedom. We are rising. The scent of freedom is in the air. This is our time to mobilize, to build, to create social change. This is the time, and we are that change. Won't you join us? From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. The man not race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. This morning, waking up a free man after more than four decades in solitary confinement. How does it feel? Uh, I really haven't decided yet. Yesterday, Albert Woodfox, one of the prisoners known as the Angola Three, celebrated his 69th birthday by walking out of a Louisiana jail. After taking a plea deal, he's now starting life outside of his 9x6 prison cell for the first time in 43 years. Right now, I'm just resigned to uh, trying to adjust to being free. 
That is an ABC News report from February 20th of 2016. For more than four decades, Albert Woodfox was in solitary confinement in one of the most notorious prisons in the United States. He was accused of the 1972 murder of a corrections officer named Brent Miller. Albert Woodfox always maintained his innocence. He claimed he and another prisoner were framed for the killing because of their activities over conditions in Louisiana's Angola prison as members of the Black Panther Party. And though his conviction was twice thrown out, Albert Woodfox would go on to spend more time in solitary confinement than any other prisoner in U.S. history. As you heard, Albert Woodfox was released three years ago. He's written a book, Solitary, My Story of Transformation and Hope. Albert Woodfox joins me in Toronto. And a warning, this interview contains some graphic language and violence. Hello and welcome. Thank you for having me. As you listen to that report, what what do you think, that first day of freedom? It doesn't seem like three years, exactly, you know. Uh, And then on my birthday as well, so. uh, But for me, you know, everything has been first-time experiences. And I think one of the strengths that I developed while in solitary was almost instantaneous adjustments. Because, you know, you, 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 you're forced to deal with constant change, constant change. So you have to adjust in order to, uh, for me to, to stay sane, you know. And um, I, I want to hear your, your whole story, but let, let's just talk about solitary for a minute. Like I said, more than four decades. What's the exact amount of time? Uh, by my estimate, uh, 44 years, 10 months. 44 years. I, I, You know, I can't even imagine what that means. <laughs> it's difficult for me sometimes, you know, when you think in terms of days and weeks and and months and years, you think that you've been locked in a nine-by-six cell longer than most people have been alive. Well, we're going to talk more about that, but I want to go back. Um, I want to talk about your childhood as well. I want to know what it was like for you as a young boy. You were growing up in New Orleans. Well, like most African Americans uh, in this country, you know, America, contrary to the image, uh, is a very racist country. Uh, and African Americans were at the bottom of the social uh, ladder. And so the uh, the uh, full blunt of racism, uh, individual institution, and the systemic application of racism uh, in America was very difficult uh, for me as a young man, you know. And... Uh, I can remember growing up at that time, I had no no hope, no images, uh, no inspiration uh, because, you know, uh, even going to high school when they had uh, history and civil service classes, uh, you know, African-Americans were totally absent, you know, from the history books. Uh, so, you know, you have no sense of... Uh, Belonging, no sense of uh, you as an individual or, or, or as a member of African American uh, ethnic uh, 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 people uh, had any con- contribution to uh, society or to the civilization. And so at that time, my only images and stuff were people involved in, 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 in crime and in street life as we referred to it. Mm. And um, your mom. Your mom was illiterate. She couldn't just get any job. She had to do some pretty desperate things. To, yeah, I to, mean, to, she was illiterate. She could only read a, write a name. 
Uh, she was an African-American woman. I don't have to tell you the situation that women were in America at that time, you know. And uh, being, being you know, African-American and being uh, illiterate, she was very limited. And so, like, she was forced, you know, into prostitution and and all kind of, uh, you know, uh, schemes and scams, uh, you know, try to keep a roof over our head and food and, and on the table and clothes and stuff. And sometimes things got pretty hard and difficult, which led to me, you know, shoplifting. You know, I used to go to the supermarket and stuff and shoplift canned goods and, 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 and bread and stuff and bring it home. And I would have to sneak it in the house because she would never tolerate, you know, uh, us doing anything like that at that time. You know, it was so strange because... She felt as though the burden of raising and protecting us was horns and horns alone, you know. So I used to work, like a lot of times, uh, she used to do a lot of bartending work. And then, and so a lot of times, you know, I would wait to see, you know, she'd come and she'd work at 2 or 3 in the morning, come in and be, you know, uh, exhausted. And so I would, you know, go and, and chop, lift food and stuff, and then I would sneak it into the house and, you know, put it in a cabin and stuff. And she was never the wise of that. You know, she was always under the impression that, you know, she bought this food and stuff. You know? mm, but that's how it started for you, huh? Yeah. Shoplifting for food? That and, 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 and the guys in the neighborhood I hung out with. You know, we didn't, African Americans had uh, basically zero uh, outlook on life. Uh, you know, zero hope, zero. We had no images, no positive images. Other than the images, uh, the, you know, the men in the neighborhood, and at that time, as strange as it was, uh, being a petty criminal was a prestigious position. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was a product of the culture and the times uh, that I grew up. What would you do? Well, I'd burglarize, you know, uh, uh, shoplifts, uh, uh, sold drugs, been a drug addict, uh, you know. How old were you during all this? Oh, well, young teens. So you end up at a prison called Angola at that young age in Louisiana. 22. What's it like when you get to Angola? Very violent, very racist, segregated, uh, you had a thriving sex slave market in which young kids coming in, 16, 17 years old, were being raped and forced to live as sex slaves. And uh, prison, other prisoners and, and security people uh, benefited from it directly. They had a name for when the new young prisoners came in. You used to call them fresh fish. And once they had been turned out, they were referred to as gal boys. And what what was it about the Black Panthers that attracted you? What did you like about them? You know, sometimes you have, you know, you have a lot of things going on inside you, in your heart, in your soul, and your mind. And But you can't figure what it is. You know, it's there. You know it's there. And, uh, you know, I always say that the voice of the street was louder than the voice of my mother. And the voice of the Black Panther Party was was louder than the voice of the street. The Panthers, what they were doing, spoke to 
a lot a lot of the inner feelings that I had but didn't understand and, and couldn't intellectualize and couldn't speak about. And so I think that was the, uh, but I have to be honest, uh, you know, I, I received a 50-year prison sentence for armed robbery. And the same day I, I escaped, and eventually I wound up in Harlem because I knew Harlem from my criminal days. But this was a different Harlem, uh, you know. Uh, the Black Panther Party had uh, been established, and uh, they were very influential in the black community. And so, you know, uh, seeing, you know, the, uh, the men and women in the party moving around the neighborhoods and, you know, positive things, you know. and so, You liked that. You liked the, well, the, the really, way they were seen. I, I was attracted to the, to the women in the party. I'm going to be honest. You know, I had no political. At that time, I was just another petty criminal. Uh, but these women were so beautiful and so strong. And I, I later uh, come to understand that the beauty I was seeing was the inner beauty and being expressed, you know, of course, uh, in the activities uh, and the work they were doing. And, uh, and the, the, they, the, they were, it was also a, a sense of belonging, wasn't it? Like they had, oh, they, yeah. they were disciplined. Pride, they, pride. Yeah. yeah. Pride, I, self-respect, <laughs> uh, determination. You know, they had a purpose. And so even then, though, I, as I said, my own selfish reasons was. And so when I started approaching these sisters with the silliness of the, of, the, of, the, of the criminal life, you know, and these sisters went to talking about revolution and community control and protecting the community and protecting senior citizens and honoring our elders, and I'm like, huh, you know. Context of white supremacy. If somebody has Neely Fuller Jr.'s word guide, could you get the word tarnished? I'm pretty sure that's in the word guide. Tarnished. I think that's one he suggests we not use. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade. In for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, April 6th. 2019, so I have been told. I'm going to start with the Albert Wood Fox piece, and then we'll do the normal introduction for the compensatory call-in. Mr. Albert Wood Fox, Angola 3 victim of white supremacy, <clears throat> did an interview on CBC with Anna, Anna, Marie, Anna Maria Tremonti, suspected race soldier, white woman. I faded out. If you uh, notice in the interview, it was talking and I faded out. I was going to stop right there and then we were going to go, you know, to the live program. That interview is about 40 minutes. Uh, we heard maybe 10 minutes of it, maybe a little more than 10 minutes. I was going to stop it when you heard the fade. And the reason that I stopped it is because, and we've talked about this before, it is pretty repulsive to hear the endless stream of white journalists, white male and female journalists, suspected racists, interview black people, and it's the same pattern. All right. So tell us about the time that you and your brothers fought off a possum and a squirrel for the last bowl of cornflakes. Tell us about the time that you walked in on your mother shooting heroin. Your father beat up you your brothers, the dog, he didn't have a job, of course. Tell us, tell us about when your dad left 
Your mother was destitute. You all had no shoes. The rodents were run. Tell us, tell us all about it. There was only one pork chop in the house. You all had. I'm just done. I'm totally done with hearing those narratives. They do these all the time. If whites invested as much time and energy in those types of interviews as they did in going to solve the problem, we wouldn't have to sit and listen to any more of these interviews ever again. I think that's another form. The, uh, the delectable Negro. I think that is a form uh, of racist consumption to just hear and enjoy and I think get some sort of uh, wicked satisfaction out of hearing about how a black person has been abused. Now, it was brought back because I was doing my diligence. I was going to stop right there, but, you know, I still listen to the whole interview. So I'm continuing. And so she gets through with all of the Negro trauma drama. and rah, 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 rah. So they get to Angola. Sex slaves. Whoa. The man not race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. That would be delectable Negro uh, as well. He said, not that I haven't heard this before, not that I'm, whoa, like this is the first time I've heard that. But Mr. Woodfox, he says that the security guards are benefiting from and involved in that, in this sex slaves rape of black males in Louisiana are involved in this. The security guards has got to mean a lot of white guys. Again, not that I'm surprised. I've heard this before. The interview we did on the book Sentenced to Science, they said the exact same thing, talking about the prison system in Philadelphia, that the guards were involved in this scheme, sex slave raping predominantly black males. Same thing in the Pennsylvania uh, prison system where Mumia is. Uh, but when he talked about that, and the white woman doing the interview when she came back around and she kept putting the emphasis on the prison gangs, the prison rape gangs, the prison. Ra and he had already said the security guards were involved in this. The people who are most to blame. That's the same thing that uh, when we talked to the authors of Sentenced to Science, this would not be happening. This systemic rape of black male inmates and male inmates in general, it would not be happening if the guards didn't want this to happen. They could stop this immediately if they wanted to. Echo, I feel like I just heard that. They didn't want to. In the interview, it kept going back to the prison rape. No, 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 no. <laughs> they are inmates after all. I mean, who's running this place? That is who you need to watch Shawshank Redemption. If they want to put down a prison gang, they know how to put down a prison gang. No problem. We can do that next 30 seconds real quick. This here, compensatory calling. You should read that. Reading is more important than watching telev uh, television. Mr. Woodfox, solitary man. Compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, questions, observations. The number 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Few things before we get to the live callers. So I think I said last week, definitely last week, if not before, we were three people short 
for the California retreat. I was disgruntled, mostly uh, because I said, wow, if we had planned this correctly, which all of the rest of the retreats are set up to be planned correctly, we would have easily had three people and we would have been chilling in California for July. Some of the folks who were signed up and ready to roll for California said, man, are we just, you know, giving up? That's just it. We just have to wait until December to see about another retreat. And my answer was basically going to be yes, because I think, you know, it takes time and, you know, all that. I did pause. They do what they call Labor Day in September, first weekend in September, Many folks do operate Labor Day retreats. That would still be about three, almost four months before the December retreat. It would still technically be summer. So we could still do a Labor Day retreat if there were enough folks who were interested. Uh, I still would be willing to go West Coast since we'll be on the East Coast with the Florida retreat December 27th through January 1. But I thought I would at least ask, see if we had uh, enough folks uh, who would be down for Labor Day if we did like that Thursday through Sunday. That way folks could get back. If you have to be on the plantation uh, for that Monday of the week, some people have that Monday off so you can be leisurely about returning. Uh, But we could do Thursday through Sunday. That would be like what we had in Virginia. And we could see California, if that's available. Uh, But I think it should be something West Coast, just like I said, since we'll be in Florida for December. But yeah, I thought I would at least inquire. I think there would be there should be enough time between now and September to plan that out unless folks already have a lot of activities for Labor Day weekend. But drop an email, put Labor Day retreat in the subject. If we have enough folks who are interested, I'll post and inquire. We'll take a few weeks and see. If not, we will look forward to Florida in December. More details to come. We are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Uh, hit my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. Huge thanks to all the listeners who have invested over the past decade. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. If you're not into PayPal, drop me an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Also, you can invest via our wish list at Amazon.com. Linked on the blog, it should be right beneath the PayPal button. Uh, if you go to Amazon, it's Gus T. Renegade. Uh, again, much obliged to all the folks, investors who have nabbed items over the last 10 years. I uh, hope the cows has provided information, accurate, constructive information about what white supremacy racism is what it means to be classified as white and remains worthy of your time and energy. Other things. Wow. The yoga saga continues. We'll have an update on that as we proceed. Wow. And it has been stressful. Cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, I can even uh, quantify (laughs) the amount of stress. Now, 
I said, Virginia was stressful for four days, and it was. I thought I was going to die. I am never going back to Virginia again. This ordeal with the yoga studio, when I was in Virginia, my normal walk-around weight for some time has been 202. Went to Virginia, came back, my weight was 201. That's four days, lost a pound. That Virginia extracted a pound of flesh. I got that pound back just with this strife with the yoga studio over the last two and a half weeks. My weight has dropped to 196. That is not effort at losing weight. That is not even weight I needed to lose. In fact, I would say I need to get those four pounds, really five pounds back because my normal walk around weight is 202. Absolutely toxic, wretched and tacky. That is the word I have used consistently tacky absolutely tacky uh the main thing and tarnish uh somebody gets that in the word guide uh one enormous i cannot emphasize enough white people talk about racism white supremacy one of the culpable suspected race soldiers in this incident you would think oh this person is probably not super informed about racism this is not an old geezer uh, this is someone who listens to, goes to Drake concerts, listens to Drake music and, you know, is all about hip hop and, and all of that. You would think, oh, no, this is someone he doesn't be talking about. You would be wrong. This is someone who has paid money to attend workshops on white supremacy, racism and conducted modules, hired people to speak about racism, white supremacy, fluid in what they call anti-racist speak, all of the jargon, rhetoric, got it all down. I've studied this well. <laughs> anyway, you are totally mistaken if you think whites, any of them, are not talking about racism, white supremacy on a regular basis. You are totally incorrect. Other thing, huge lesson for Gus T, I forgot, really minimized. Identifying individual victims, can't emphasize enough, victims of racism who are white identified more so than what you would expect from a normal victim of racism, be it because they are in a tragic arrangement or they have a white parent or whatever the case may be. Maybe they grew up around a lot. Maybe they grew up in a place like Seattle, didn't have a lot of access to non-white people and just grew up having lots of white friends and that sort of thing, whatever it is. Victims. Uh, but important to keep that in mind. I was explaining to a victim of racism some of the things that have been happening at the yoga studio. And I noticed that the conversation kept going back to things that I did wrong. It was not anything that white and making excuses for times where white people practiced racism and even admitted that they were culpable uh, in doing wrong things where racism was practiced. And I just said, well, I really neglect, neglected that. I thought of it for an instant before talking to this person because I wanted to share with them. But it was like, oh, yeah, that <sighs> white identified person, white identified victim of racism, still a victim. Anyway, so we get into the discussion and our values, so important. She, at one point, she said, uh, you know, you just got a free yoga class. Doesn't that mean something? Doesn't that show you that there's a little bit of humanity with us all? And I stopped and I, <laughs> I stopped and 
I just I thought like, wow, I mean, I've seen so many white people get free classes for for nothing. <laughs> like just they came in and I forgot my wallet or my phone battery died. So I couldn't use the app to sign up for the class or, you know, whatever. <laughs> like they just came in with any kind of excuse and eh, come on in. It's no like I've seen that happen repeatedly. So why should I be overjoyed that I got a free yoga class? I mean, I don't. I was just kind of, <laughs> I was bewildered that, you know, racism is practiced. Should I be codified with a free yoga class? <laughs> like, I don't, anyway, my reparations tab should be substantially higher. Anyway, she moved from that and uh, we stopped the conversation. She called me uh, an angry black male who goes around feeling bad. And I said, whoa, whoa, we stopped the conversation 30 seconds after that because I was like, I'm being mistreated again. Uh, my victimization is being totally minimized, even if I did walk around feeling bad and being an angry black male, um, I was mistreated like, you know, that would be. Re but pfft, let's just discontinue the conversation, which I would always recommend before it gets to the point where you're fuming and calling names and coon. What did you call and that? Let's just go ahead and wrap up this conversation. We'll pick it up next time. Thank you kindly. And move on with the day. That makes a lot more sense. And incidentally, I did add that to my code, not only remembering if I've already identified, I think this is someone who might be white identified and we maybe can't talk about racism at all. I would also identify anytime anybody identifies me as an angry black male, that is the end of the conversation. And we might not talk again about racism, but no, once that happens, conversation is done. Thank you kindly. Have a blessed day. Moving forward. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Man, I do not offer questions on uh, Area 8, not pertaining to white people and black people, just, you know, Area 8 in general and trying to have a constructive arrangement, non-white female, non-white male. Folks talk about the 200 questions. Mr. Fuller recommends asking one another a question that I recommend asking yourself. How has this arrangement made my life better? If you are not able to answer that question, maybe this arrangement is not for you. I think that is a great question. And maybe you can add that to the list of 200, you know, ask each other and see what one another says. Now, that is moment of truth. Pitocin, they were talking about that, the sisters uh, segment on doulas for black moms. We talked about that in prenatal prenatal yoga teacher training side effects that talk about questions to ask. What are the side effects of Pitocin? Great question to ask before you get to the labor aspect because they like to hide all of that. It can have side effects for both the mother and the child. You would want detailed information and do your own research about the side effects of Pitocin. Uh, I know my prenatal instructor was big thumbs down, but, you know, white people do aggressively push that in the labor area. Belly dancing, we actually did in prenatal teacher training uh, for yoga. It does a lot to move your pelvis area. That's where a lot of the magic happens for birthing, uh, but to move and even just to move the baby around for the mom to help get that baby in position to be delivered. I thought, my goodness, that is exactly what we did there and explained some of the science of why that can be helpful. I think some people around the world that is incorporated into the birth 
process, uh, what they call belly dancing, just anything to get those hips moving, stretched for that child to come through the birth canal. Uh, let's see. Alex Brinson, that was the white male suspected racist. He was on WNYC. He was giving the his theory on whether or not there is a correlation between uh, cannabis consumption and psychosis. And he said, you can say what you want about colonizers, but they made a lot of paper talking about the study that they did uh, on the impact of cannabis. And again, racists, not ignorant. They study catalog. Mr. Fuller talks about that in detail, but I thought, what a what a curious statement. <laughs> like, you can say what you want about not racists, not terrorists, not white people, but colonizers. Words are very important. Tarnished in the word guide. Uh, let's see. The segment where they talked about uh, Ralph Northam, they went to some of the members of the Virginia Black Caucus to get their opinion. You know, Mr. Northam is not stepping down. And, and uh, what do you think? And I was expecting them to say, you know, they're talking to the Congressional Black Caucus like, hey, we're done with the coon man. I'm going to pull out my phone. I'm going to make two phone calls. Call number one is going to be to the indomitable boule. Call number two to the powerful NAACP. And Mr. Kuhnman, he will remember the time, Michael Jackson, when he could have resigned. Hmm. That's what I would expect if you got all of these powerful black people in all of these offices. Boulay included that Kung Man should be no problem, right? I guess that's not the case. I think, again, all of the leaders of black people are white. I believe that is an accurate statement. I could be incorrect. Anywho, uh, I'll <laughs> make sure I get in again. I did say University of Virginia my alma mater, I did say, and I want to be clear, I have not watched one NCAA basketball game this year, and I don't think I watched any last year. If the most powerful racist in the universe came to me right now and said, we'll end racism in the next 60 seconds, if you can name one person on the University of Virginia basketball team, White supremacy would continue. I couldn't even guess like a half a name. Don't know the coach, anybody. My sole prediction was based on white supremacy racism. I'm going with the Coon Man all the way. I think he will be moonwalking it up with the NCAA trophy, and it looks like they won today. So one more victory, and the team, they would be ridiculed year after year for losing in the first round, the year of the Coon Man controversy, the University of Virginia is one win away from an NCAA championship. Are you serious? Coon Man, 2019. Uh, let's see, anything else before we get to the folks who dialed in? I will save the rest for later. 
email about Labor Day if folks are interested, if there's time enough, if we can do it, time, interest, I think it should be West Coast until justice at gmail.com. Oh, there was one more thing. I will take three minutes for the last comment. Mr. Albert Woodfox, I enjoyed hearing uh, his commentary so much. I'm going to see if we can get him on the program. We talked earlier this week, we had a victim of white supremacy, Dr. Jerome Fox, on the program, Addicted to White, talked about his book. He made the point in that interview, laziness. He said that he described black people as being too lazy uh, to read constructive information to help us solve this problem. And I told him on the program, I said, wow, I'm suspicious. Anytime I hear someone reference black people uh, as lazy, racist, that's the conclusion that they've had. That's what they said about black people. Black people are lazy. So we got to mistreat them. We got to have, you know, plantations because the niggers are lazy. So I'm suspicious. Anytime someone comes uh, subsequently and says, well, the problem is niggers are lazy. <clears throat> uh, I just, I have a problem with that. Generally, I reject that conclusion outright. Mr. Albert Woodfox, talking about reading, he said his mother was illiterate. That was in the early portion when they were, oh, yes, tell us about your mother. She was a crackhead, illiterate. Yes, yes, tell us more. She was illiterate. Now, I could say that Albert Woodfox, his mother, was lazy. I don't think that's most accurate. I think it's most accurate, as I said on that program, racist white supremacists through a variety of schemes, some that we probably don't even know, including the hate you give, have done so many things to condition black people to not read or to out and out make sure that black people do not read, whether you're illiterate, whether you just aren't interested in books, whether you've been suspended from school, whatever. They have done so much. I just, I don't even understand the logic of how the conclusion after centuries of all that is black people are too lazy to read. In fact, I even pull back. They talk about epigenetics, right? If we want to use some fancy lingo, that's what they talk about when things happen that are so traumatic that they can impact your genes and be passed on through generations. Could it be an epigenetic factor of you having people who are generation after generation terrorized for trying to read and or having their reading ability obstructed? Could that have an epigenetic impact on reading comprehension and or even desire to read? Question. Or it could just be niggas are lazy. Take your pick. Coon Man, University of Virginia, championship. Number is 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Take five minutes to share your commentary. Uh, if you could keep it to five, that way everybody gets at least one chance to speak. If you have additional comments or suggestions, we should have time at the end. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would be super appreciated. If we could refrain from metaphors on this broadcast, that would be grand. Uh, racists often use metaphors <clears throat> to produce confusion. Master deceivers, uh, victims of white supremacy frequently. Uh, we are still learning, sometimes myself included. We don't have logic, and we will replace that with a metaphor, analogy, simile of some sort. Uh, and often that just creates more confusion. Uh, for this specific broadcast, if we can make an effort to be explicit, direct about what we want to say, I would appreciate it. I will prompt 
about the metaphors. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, star six one if you have commentary. Uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings. Can I be heard? Heard both of you. Let's get Draftomania first. Um, good evening, Gus and Gus. Um, your segments were very, very compelling this uh, evening. And I wanted to start off by talking about uh, the uh, rapper who uh, is now deceased, um, Nipsey Hussle. Um, his death was said to be um, in connection to uh, Dr. Sebi. Um, he was doing a documentary on Dr. Sebi. So um, some are uh, relating this to uh, uh, that documentary. They're saying that um, this is not um, just a random killing. Um, also, um, I was looking at another uh, uh, broadcast and they were saying that NBC News was um, said to attack uh, Nipsey Hussle, the rapper, and called him a toxic, um, the word toxic black male, or he was using toxic masculinity, and that is a, a, a Tommy Curry, um, the man not, uh, I would put that in that cat, in that category. Um, Let's see. What else? What else? Um, also, I wanted to talk about the um, the marijuana. Um, I was looking at uh, a documentary, and the CIA did experimentations on black inmates who were um, uh, heroin addicts in the fifties, and they gave them LSD. Um, uh, they wanted to experiment on them and they gave them LSD and they were giving them this um, drug for like 72 days straight and all these weird numbers of days and they would reward them after doing the experimentation with heroin. Um, and I also did some um, research on the cannabis. Um, there is a documentary. I just was watching it. Um, the other day and it's called the CIA hidden operations and it does discuss how the CIA um, um, and uh, I guess along with um, the LSD they were also using um, marijuana they thought that marijuana was gonna be a true serum um, so they have been um, Marijuana was used as, as a weapon. They did weaponize uh, marijuana. It's not a conspiracy theory. There's uh, actual documentation and documentaries on this subject. And it's not a coincidence because I was just watching it like yesterday. Um, also, your friend, um, Mr. Coleman, he was in the um, news. Um, let's see. I'll read something. Um, he, um, there's a, something that says, uh, 
It's from, I got this from the activist, activist mommy. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam um, makes animal cruelty a, a felony and supports post-birth and infanticide. And uh, he says that he has no regrets for saying with a straight face that he, as a doctor and the governor of Virginia, would support killing a baby after it, after it has already been born. This is um, on top of fully supporting the barbaric practice of abortion at any stage, of course, which is all murder, violates the Hippocratic Oath. He would have had to take a practice medicine to first do no harm. But animal cruelty, on the other hand, is to Northern more abhorrent than butchering a newborn or unborn baby, according to the Life uh, Sites News. And while protecting newborn babies who survive abortions is apparently too much for Northern support, a law against animal cruelty isn't. Today, he signed a new bill into law. Uh, that would make animal cruelty a felony in uh, the Commonwealth. Current law requires the animal to die before someone can face felony charges starting July the 1st under the bill. Northern approved animal abusers could be found guilty of a class six felony. And that's all I had to share at this time. And thank you. Much obliged. Our male caller, thank you for your patience. Uh, you can proceed uh not a problem uh this is uh victim out of new jersey um i too wanted to talk about the uh rapper nipsey hustle um i think i think for me uh his death disturbed me because his um his contributions to his community showed um as francis chris uh Wilson would say um um uh, it skips my mind, but he 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 showed proud uh, proudness and um, self respect, black self respect. Um, his death also um, uh, started conversations with people that I you know that I know, and there was a lot of anti blackness surrounding his death. Um, black people started to that I know. And also what I see on social media started to blame the black collective for his death. Uh, I've seen um, statements like uh, what's wrong with black people. Um, um, we need to um, get it together and account black accountability. Uh, that, that resonated with me because um, if you hold, what does that mean to hold black people accountable? Um, I got into a conversation with a black female and I asked if you were to hold black people accountable, whatever that means, how would that stop one black person from killing another black person? Um, I paused, I asked the question, she couldn't answer. Um, so that's something that disturbed me with this, uh, with the passing of this rapper. There was a lot of, amongst all the uh, praise for his uh, contributions to um, his his neighborhood, there was a lot of uh, anti-blackness uh, on social media. Um, 
I listened to the broadcast a few days ago. I want to say it was two days ago or maybe last week. And I was, I didn't know how to take uh, Dr. Jerome Fox's statement about the black collective being cowards. Um, I had, I had to, you know, I had to just think. Um, I'm still thinking. Um, so I have to think on that. Um, he also, he also attributed laziness to our inability to get out of this situation. Um, to go back to the conversation with black female over Nipsey Hussle, she too, uh, said that blacks are lazy and this is the reason why we're in this condition. Um, I didn't get emotional. I, you know, I just, you know, I, I just uh, let her explain why she thought we was lazy. Again, there was, you know, it it, it was just her conjecture. Um, you know, a lot of times when I have these conversations, a lot of black people aren't well versed in black history, uh, aren't well read in black history. So, uh, VGQ. Um, question as I close. Uh, there's a movement, um, ADOS, um, American Descendants of Slavery, and they're asking for reparations. I would want to ask uh, Gus and other callers, does that qualify as a compensatory request asking uh, the United States government for reparations? Um, I had some other things I wanted to say, but it escapes me. Uh, I'll save it. Uh, so Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, I guess my response to the question, then other people can proceed, uh, is that it, I guess anybody can take their position on it. For me, it is not the same because I think uh, compensatory investment request, as outlined by Mr. Fuller, uh, compensating for what is missing. What's missing is justice. Uh, in my view, just with reparations, since the mistreatment is ongoing, I'm not sure, like you could say we're repairing for if it's repairing for chattel slavery or whatever aspect of white terrorism we're picking out. But since it's ongoing from the moment that I get my check, you know, the repairs would have to be, there are new repairs that would have to be addressed. So in my view, it's not quite uh, the same, but I, if someone wanted to articulate and say, yeah, I do think it's the same, that would be fine with me. Like it's not, you know, that would be fine too. Other folks uh, that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary that you would like to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, M. Han DC? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, of course, I agree with you. Uh, reparations that makes sense if we're still in the system of white supremacy i wanted to uh, also speak about the segment where uh, there was conversation about facebook and facebook censoring uh, quote-unquote white white nationalists or white supremacists um, and not censoring black nationalists or they, I don't think they said black supremacists, but they, they, they probably will. And, you know, in the next broadcast that they speak about that 
um, topic, but they do this, um, this nonsense where they say that the white people are being discriminated against now. And now there's also black racism against white people, um, the ice albinos who are killing us. Um, but they also did the same thing with the Jesse uh, Smollett uh, individual. You know, it was all orchestrated so that they could um, poke fun or they can make fun of us and that they can say that black people are just speaking about racism and it's not a real thing and that there's really not white supremacy and that they're and they're saying this over the news and they just keep saying it and to where people who don't have a, a better understanding of white supremacy, people over the oceans, they're hearing that our complaints are invalid and they are valid. White people are the worst thing that has happened to us. And white people have to be stopped. Ice albinos have to be stopped. Uh, there, there was something else. Yes. So the chemtrails, I think it is very important that people again, record the sky, just record it. It's not going to take up a whole lot of your memory. People have smartphones and phones with a, um, a lot of memory on their phone. It only takes 30 seconds to record. Well, I'm, really, it only takes 10 seconds to record what I'm talking about. Just stand outside, you'll see it. You'll see the airplanes, you'll see them crisscrossing, you'll see them making domes. Uh, just take pictures and take videos. We need some footage and uh, keep it. Okay, thank you. Much obliged, Emhan DC. Context of white supremacy, number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Others we've not heard from at all. Uh, yeah. Can I be heard? Uh, let's see, I heard multiple folks. Let's get our caller 2311, then we'll get retired firefighter. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so, Gus, <clears throat> I'm currently uh, writing, well, I'm attempting to write a book on uh, the power of courteousness, and I wanted to know if you could uh, provide me with the well, uh, you said you study where the, uh, the black people were trying to cross the street, you know, and and you know, you saw that you know it was it was harder for black people to cross the street, you know, in certain areas than non-black people in certain areas. And I wanted to know if you can provide me with where you found that study at. You know, that was, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I can answer that one uh, right now. That was uh, whites in Oregon uh, conducted a study, I think, in 2014, uh, and it showed that it took black people. I think they had uh, quantified it took black people like 33 percent longer uh, to cross the street uh, at a crosswalk. It was just black. They didn't say black and brown people or black and Latinos or people. They said black people. It took them 33 percent longer people just didn't allow them to cross as quickly uh, and i tried to get the authors of that study as guests on the program to explain dr welsing even said that they have similar research that it takes black people longer 
uh, or black people, black cyclists are more likely to be struck by motorists. But I didn't see that what Dr. Welsing said, because uh, I was talking to her about it at the same time. But I think it's, uh, or I don't think I know, it's universe, uh, I was in the state of Oregon uh, to about 2014. And I'm sure you can Google it or somebody will pull it up in the next 10 minutes. Thank you. Um, also, I wanted to comment on the uh, the, the marijuana uh, piece that you know that you broadcasted. Uh, myself, I recently stopped smoking marijuana. Um, it's been about three months now, and the the effects on my sleep have been that I sleep better. I can remember my dreams better. And when I wake up, I don't feel as groggy as I did when I was smoking marijuana. So it has been a very beneficial, it's been very beneficial to me, you know, to stop smoking marijuana. Uh, I've been listening to um, a lot of the old uh, broadcasts that you have, um, you know, being that... um, uh, Apple hasn't been uploading your your recent most recent um, programs. And one of the one of the most uh, profoundest episodes that stood out to me was the Cheryl Judith <laughs> uh, episodes that really stood out to me in the area eight. Oh, uh, Phil, it was, it, it, I mean, wow. And, <laughs> yeah, very much. And if, if uh, uh, listeners listen to that, that episode, um, I want to know I sent you an email on a white gentleman. Um, his name is John Metzl. Uh, he he uh, authored a book called Dying of Whiteness. He was on um, C-SPAN maybe a couple weeks ago. Uh, I think he will be a, a, an, an excellent guest. And I remember you were. Uh, this is on another uh, on another note. You 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 mentioned about reparations, and if black people were to get reparations right now, would we have to get reparations 50 or 100 years later based on the fact that we're still being mistreated. That that really put things in perspective for me. So uh, just a couple of things, and, and I appreciate, you know, and, and this is not to give you any kudos or anything, because I know you don't need any kudos, <laughs> you know, until the system of white supremacy is ended. But, hey, like I say, until the until the system is ended, then it ain't, it's no kudos to go around. So you know, the, the show is constructive, but it is what it is. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Uh, my memory is is not that bad. Uh, Portland drivers clearly, and that's their word, and they got it in quotes. Clearly, show racial bias at crosswalks. Uh, Portland State University study says, uh, and this is from May 21, 2014, do Portland drivers exhibit racist tendencies at crosswalks? 
Yes, according to a new study at PSU. Uh, yes, according to a new PSU study. Racial bias, white supremacy, doesn't stop with education, employment, health care, and criminal sentencing or the yoga studio. It's also prevalent at crosswalks in Portland, according to a new study of traffic psychology. And they have the study linked. Uh, conducted in a downtown Portland Conducted in downtown Portland, the joint Portland State University and University of Arizona study found that twice as many drivers failed to yield for black pedestrians than those who were white. Meanwhile, black pedestrians typically had to wait a third longer, said 33 percent, a third longer for cars to stop for them when they had the legal right of way with fewer motorists yielding for them. Minorities, victims of white supremacy, are more likely to take greater risks to cross the street. Retired firefighter, thank you for your patience. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, everyone. Tarnished image slash reputations. Reputations. Do not use these terms, is Mr. Fuller's suggestion. Reason. The terms tarnished image, tarnished reputation, blackened reputation, etc., have often been used in a manner that is supportive of white supremacy, racist thinking. For example, a person with a tarnished image would be thought of as being dark as well as being despicable. During the existence of the system of white supremacy, racism, the basic intent for the use of such terms is to associate unworthy or destructive behavior with the physical appearance of non-white people. Uh, that's uh, from your request uh, from the word guide. Uh, DCS program uh, today started a, another, another uh, quote-unquote mentoring session. Uh, there is a vast increase of young black male participants. Uh, I mean, really an increase. Uh, there's somewhere in the vicinity of, I think I counted up to maybe something like 50 people. Normally the classes would be uh, something like 20 or 30. So it's a, you know, a pretty much a visible increase. Uh, basically what takes place is to hand out the, uh, some of the literature uh, that we would like for the, uh, guys to uh, study and some of it to put to memory. Uh, actually, during the period of time that we pass out the material, we, we have them to uh, recite it just to get an idea of, of uh, the different uh, levels of reading and comprehension, as well as uh with exercises in uh assisting them to build self-respect when you're able to stand in front of people 
and uh, project your voice, uh, that's, I would say, is a form of confidence, self-confidence, uh, and an exercise in it also. Uh, normally, uh, at least during the session, the, the sessions, uh, they start 9 o'clock, 9 a.m., and end at 4 p.m. Uh, during the course of that time, other than giving them uh, time outside to uh, exercise and or rump around uh, to a, a level uh, that is uh, safe. Uh, we also uh, show, uh, show something to them in an audio-visual way, something that uh, they can get lessons out of. And we normally start with the documentary on the late, the great Emmett Till. Uh, because the because the story itself, well, the, the the incident itself, I wouldn't say the story, but the incident itself, is uh, is very much a direct uh, a direct uh, situation that could happen to a black male back during that time and in the present time, and uh, the uh, fellows can identify with it. Uh, based on uh, Emmett's age, and uh, during the course of the uh, documentary, I stop it and uh, give some uh, articulation on how uh, what happened in the what they see in the documentary is relevant to themselves as of today, and how uh, it needs to be. A program such as the one that we are attempting to uh, uh, organize, and at the same time, uh, the practice of sharing and exchanging views and understandings of things, and be uh, interested in solving problems, especially the main problem, which is the global system of racism and white supremacy. Uh, I just had a thought on, on reparations and uh, uh, in the present day of what that word is being stated as is similar to uh, uh, patching up uh, a person that's being wounded from gunshot wounds, but at the same time, the person is still getting gunshot wounds. Uh, <laughs> is uh, kind of like, uh, you know, irrelevant, as long as the problem still exists. And uh, that's all I'd say. Thank you for listening. Much obliged, retired firefighter. So glad to hear you all had such a robust turnout of young people. Thank you for uh, getting the definition from the word guide. Reason, explanation, the word tarnished. Uh, others that we have missed totally for the caller that was asking about the study I think uh, or I didn't I don't think I just posted it on uh, Facebook and tweeted it so you should be able to track it down easily others that we've missed totally if you have commentary uh, greetings Ivy Greetings, Steph, and greetings to all the callers on the line. 
Sorry, I took so long um, getting to my mute button. But um, um, the incident that I had at Aldi um, where I asked the race soldier if if uh, if she publicly mocks, if she likes to publicly mock everyone who walks in there, every customer who comes in there or just the ones classified as black. Um, I uh, recently went back in the, in the grocery store and uh, I saw her and she was trying to act all nice and trying to be all extra. And she asked me, what'd she say? Uh, How are you doing or something? And I said, just checking out. And um, when we were done, she was saying deer and all this stuff. And when we were done, she said, um, have a nice day or something. And I didn't say anything at all. Um, and that's pretty much, I guess, going to be how I'll be going forward. Just I don't really have anything to say to her. I don't know if that's um, uncodified. Anyone on the line can let me know. Um, I recently saw an article, I believe it was from MSNBC, that um, kale, unfortunately, is, uh, I believe they said it was one of the most pesticide contaminated foods in the U.S. now. And that's, uh, that's very disappointing. Um, I want to say, um, as far as, you know, Dr. Fox, um, and it, this is something that I actually forgot. Um, I forgot that I've actually noticed a, a pattern um, with people um, in academia um, because I mentioned how, you know, he was blaming us and he was um, framing white people as um, as victims. He called them um, sociopaths. He called them sociopaths, which means that I believe it means that you don't have the ability to to sympathize with others. An interesting thing is black people, when they're um, accused of doing something, they're never, for the most part, they're never referred to, they're very rarely ever referred to as like sociopaths or anything like that because by by those definitions being that they're unable to do something like sympathize with others, black people are are usually never, um, are usually never referred to as being unable to do anything. We're usually being referred to as unwilling to do something. So we're, you know, we're just, you know, savages um, when we do something wrong. It's not because of any type of inability at all. And he even said that they have a personality disorder. They don't have no personality disorder. They're just evil and wicked and savages. That's just what they are. But a lot of times, and, and how can I put this, blaming victims and then painting you know, perpetrators as victims, like blaming black people for what white people are doing and then painting white people as, um, or portraying white people as victims, that a lot of times is pretty much what you have to do in order to have the term, the word doctor in front of your name. Um, I'm not saying everybody is like that, but for the most part, that's, again, that's a pattern that I see. And I even saw, you know, even with Dr. Curry, he's very critical um, of black people. Um and what's his name? Dr. Fox, he mentioned about, you know, gang. He, he mentioned gangs. This narrative about black people with gangs. Well, first of all, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, most gang bangers are white. And also, only 4% of murders are committed by gangs. The rest are, the other 96% are committed by the general public. Um, and as far as um, when I said that, you know, they could just replace the black players, the white people could just replace the black players with white players. Um, they're already doing that. I mean, you, you know a lot about, uh, there's Chris Stapps Porzingis, who was, um, 
you know, on the next one, Carmelo Anthony was there, and just you know about a like, and even um, let me see, Kevin Love who was on the Cavaliers, and Kyle Korver who who was on the Cavaliers. You know, these people they are they have you know a lot of fame and they have a lot of um attention, and you're just seeing well, at least I've seen more and more of a pattern of just more and more white people being um, in the league. And all, the last thing that I wanted to say is that, or at least for now, is that if if going and getting if going and getting money from white people and solving the problem with their money, if that was the answer, then Mr. Cosby, Mr. Bill Cosby would not be sitting in prison right now as an innocent man. He can't even keep himself out of prison from someone changing their story about him six times. And this man was worth over $400 million. And he can't take any of that to help himself, let alone help someone else and so-called liberate someone else. And he can't stop them from going and, and taking the money back from him that they stole to begin with, taking the money back from him through all of these lawsuits and all of these things from these these terrible false charges that they have put on him. So just this idea that, you know, they, they can, just because they have, you know, this money that they can go and they can just start another league or they can, you know, somehow solve racism from getting money from the, the very people who are harming them, again, if that was the if that was the answer and if that was the case, then Bill Cosby, certainly an innocent man, would not be sitting in prison right now. And that was all I have for now. I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Mm, anybody feel bad for Bill Cosby? Context of white supremacy. I know there was that question about reparations, if people think uh, reparations is the same thing as a compensatory investment request. Uh, folks want to get a response to that or if uh, there are other uh, questions, suggestions. Uh, anybody that we missed completely, anybody that has a hand up uh, that we've not heard from. Uh, Thomas in New York. Good to hear from you, sir. Good to hear you this evening, Gus. Good to hear all the callers. Um, I would say no to reparation. Um, can't repair something and then continue to do what you need to be repairing. Um, so why don't we stop practicing racism first? And then we could talk about reparations or um, they go back to where they came from, which, you know, they're not going to do that. So, um, no, it, it would just be um, uh, an absolute um, disaster if it happened. Um, yeah. So white people um scared of black people. And um I think that's a non logical observation. I hate when black people validate that huge component of white deception and white confusion. Um white lady in my building confronts a group of dangerous, scary, face tatted black teens with their red gang colors who were um smoking in the staircase. Um, she did it one day. She walked around the building, complained about it. Uh, the next day, she saw them. She confronted them with their, with her camera phone. 
played the video for everyone to see. No fear, not frightened, not scared, not terrified, no dread. She didn't bite her tongue at all. She gave them, um, told them everything she thought about them, except for a nigger. Um, she stood in the way and kind of blocked them so they couldn't just walk right past her. No, not scared at all. Um, I think most black women probably wouldn't have done this. Um, she printed the pictures out, hung them up all around the building. Um, no fear, as she does all this. So in the staircase, along with six black teens, no, no big deal. Uh, walks around the building um, asking black people uh, if these people live, these teens live in their apartment, and you know she's going to call the cops on them if she sees them again. So um, I just think that that's a, a big misconception and one of the things that they they um, use um, to make us seem like, <laughs> make, the, make them seem like they're the victims when they're not. Um, you know, and I mean, white. If you look at lions, tigers, bears, snakes, gorillas, crocodiles, sharks, they're not scared of none of that stuff. Just look at National Geographic Channel or Discovery Channel. Look up the late crocodile hunter. Um, they'll see the most dangerous thing in the world and just run and touch it. No fear at all. Um, cool man, um, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax. Uh, from Gus' favorite state of the muddy Virginia, and I don't mean that as a mother's metaphor, um, Coleman and the Attorney General both put pictures up um, of them in blackface, as everyone knows. Although, um, as for Coleman, we don't know if he's the person in blackface or the person in the Klan outfit. That's still up for debate. Um, the Attorney General um, claimed to be dressed like Curtis Blow at a hip-hop blackface party at a time when Curtis Blow was the only mainstream rapper. So I guess everyone was dressed like Curtis Blow. Um, the, while the Virginia um, blackface scandal was making big mainstream news, um, it looked like someone might be held accountable just for a second. And um, then they pulled up sexual misconduct allegation against the black lieutenant governor, the Fairfax. Um, the man who should be, who would be the governor if Pooman was removed from office. Um, they say that a woman came forward and said that he, he forced her to give him oral sex at prestigious Duke University. Now, I just don't see how <laughs> you could force someone with teeth. You know, you, they kind of got the power in that position. Um, another woman came forward and accused him of raping her at a hotel, I think in Boston. Uh, last week, Lieutenant Governor of the Black Man Fairfax passed a lie detector and another lie detector test, too. He raped no one, consensual sex with one. The other one, he didn't even have sex with at all. Um, he should be the governor, if you ask me. Uh, the allegations against him are all false. And in my opinion, um, you know, th this was done to deliberately um, to obfuscate from Pullman's actions. Um, now, um, if you look at the state of Virginia, uh, I know Gus can't wait to revisit it. Um, it it's just, uh, you know, they're about to look like they might be winning the national championship and we might get what Gus has suspected, um, Mr. Pullman to stand up in front of the state house holding the trophy. I believe that is the state university. But I think that these women should be charged with fraud. Um, 
filing fake police reports and slander. And I think he should seek um, civil action. Um, I think that Justice Kavanaugh should have did the same thing. The same week that they uh, they exonerate, well, as far as I'm concerned, the two lie detector tests exonerated him. Uh, the same week this happens, we have Mr. Vice President Joe Biden um, walk behind a female who's in a subordinate position to him. Now, if you spent your whole entire adult life as a senator or vice president, I would say that you were in a superior position over any woman you worked with or came in contact with while you were working, um, except for um, the first ladies and um, probably other women senators, minus Michelle, of course, because he was in a much more powerful position than her, even with her as the first lady. But um, the lady says he walks behind her, he grabs her hair, he bends over, he smells her hair as he holds it in her hand. And then he kisses her on top of her head. That would be misconduct at any job in America. Um, I think it's a disgusting act. Um, and I, I just um, think that, you know, th th this is something that should be brought up in the same vigor that they went at Mr. Fairfax. Um, um, the last thing I want to say, Gus, is uh, right now, the people being classified as black are the third largest beneficiaries of affirmative action. And uh, we're heading very quickly to the number four spot. Um, thank God that last week the Republicans um, put up a fight against this Equality Act or HR uh, House Resolution 5 that the Democrats, including all the National Black Caucus, uh, I call them National Black Caucasians, I know that's name called, uh, has not. Been, uh, they're all pushing this bill, but the uh, Republicans gave a little pushback, so right now it's held up. But could you imagine a day when the third, I mean, right now, white women, the largest recipients of affirmative action, disabled white people, the second largest beneficiaries of affirmative action, and then it'll be gay white men, the third, or maybe they'll bump off, the, maybe they'll um, jump to number two. I mean, this was uh, what we're going to have um, historically gay colleges. I mean, it, to me, this is um, very, very um, deceptive, um, tying this to the civil rights um, bill. And also, um, Gus, this reminds me of the, the way they did the Matthew Shepard game for hate crime prevention act. Uh, you know, two, one guy gets dragged in the back of, I mean, that's a hate crime because he was black. The other one, he's a crackhead who got caught up in a bad drug deal. And killed. But they are both tied together under this civil rights. Um, so I just I just don't like when they do this. They're trying to tie the gay thing to it. And I'll mute my line. Thank you, Gus. Mm. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. I think uh, Matthew Shepard generally is, well, I'll put it this way. Frequently when I hear people mention that hate crime law that's supposed to be named after uh, Mr. Byrd Jr. and uh, Matthew Shepard, suspected race soldier. I frequently hear Mr. Byrd's name omitted. So, yeah, I mean, tied together. I guess that's a metaphor, too. But uh, frequently the tie has been broken and they just mentioned the white boy. Context of white supremacy. Uh, if you have commentary, 641 715 Three six four zero, the code five six four nine four three pound. 
press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, if we have folks that have not uh, shared at all, if you have a question, comment uh, that you want to share, uh, star six one will add you to the line. If folks uh, have a thought, does that seem like it's logical? Is that worth additional pondering, additional exploring? Uh, could there be even epigenetic factors, meaning the amount of terrorism black people have faced for centuries with regards to reading? Uh, could that even uh, be passed on genetically in terms of our reading comprehension or even interest in reading? Uh, the caller that dialed in on the uh, Mr. Gnostic, uh, do you have commentary? You should be with us. Greetings, Gus. Um, may I be heard clearly? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. I'd like to read a total of nine questions that stood out to me uh, from the manifesto by the admitted white supremacist known as Brenton Harrison Tarrant. He's killed up to about 50 non-white people in New Zealand and injured about like 50 more. I'll I'll start off. Uh, The great replacement towards a new society. Question one, what do you want? Answer, we must ensure the existence of our people and the future for white children. Question two, why did you target those people? Answer, They were an obvious, visible, and large group of invaders from a culture with higher fertility rates, higher social trust, and stronger, robust traditions that seek to occupy my people's land and ethnically replace my own people. Question three, how long did you plan this attack? Answer, I began planning an attack roughly two years in advance and an attack at the location in Christchurch three months in advance. Question four, do you consider it a terroristic attack? Answer, by the definition, then yes, it is a terrorist attack, but I believe it is a partisan action against an occupying force. Question five, do you feel any remorse for the attack? Answer, no. I only wish I could have killed more invaders and more traitors as well. Question six, did you slash do you personally hate foreigners and slash other cultures? Answer, no. I spent many years traveling through many, many nations. Everywhere I traveled, barring a few small exceptions. I was treated wonderfully, often as a guest and even as a friend. The very cultures of the world greeted me with warmth and compassion, and I very much enjoyed nearly every moment I spent with them. Uh, I'd like to note that I cut the answer to question six and a half to save time. Question seven, was the attack quote-unquote racist in origin? Answer. Fertility rates are innately tied to race. So yes, there was a racial component to the attack. Question eight, was the attack quote unquote xenophobic in origin? Answer, 
fertility rates are cultural, there is no denying that. So there was a war of cultures being fought by the invaders, and my attack was a response to this. Though I hold no great fear or distrust of other peoples. Question nine. Were slash are you are quote unquote racist? Answer. Yes, by definition, as I believe racial differences exist between peoples and they have a great impact on the way we shape our societies. I also believe rate I also believe fertility rates are part of those racial differences and that the immigrants in our lands with high fertility must be forced out to ensure the existence of our race. So yes, I am racist. Uh, this admitted white supremacist was quite methodical. And if you read the manifesto, he even had uh, a plan how he would interact with uh, possible race soldiers to ensure their safety by not shooting them in their vital organs and possibly shooting them in the thigh or the arm so they can have a speedy recovery. That's a part of law enforcement. Um, thanks. That's about it for now. Wow. Thank you for sharing, sir. Dr. Welsing, the grandcestor, um, white genetic annihilation. I know she would be reading as much of that material as possible. I think that's similar to uh, Anders uh, Breivik in Norway, the Nords, uh, when 2011, when he had his terrorist uh, rampage. Uh, but the fertility, just keep going back to fertility rates, fertility rates. They're breeding. They're breeding. It's too many dark people had to do something uh, about this. That is Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, again, white genetic annihilation and the amount of time I think that's uh, important as well the amount of time studying and preparing to carry out this act of white terrorist violence that's uh, Dylan Roof he did the same thing I think they said he had visited the church uh, repeatedly and had his recon mission uh, before he went out uh, to attack uh, and kill all those people uh, down in Charleston South Carolina 2015 uh, other folks uh, have commentary that they wanted to share. We missed anybody, anybody that we haven't heard from at all. Grant, I will assume uh, we got everybody. Uh, if you have uh, additional comments, questions that you want to make sure you get in uh, star six one. We will nab you on the line. We should have a little less than 30 minutes left in the program. Gus, also, um, Elliot Lodger uh, also mm. had a very compelling mm. manifesto as well. Mm. Mm. Now, that one, Anders Breivik, his uh, manifesto is too long. We had a listener volunteer to read a manifesto because I was very resolute. I'm not reading anything for a while. I read uh, The Man Not, so, you know, it'll be some months before I narrate, but a listener did volunteer to narrate. Uh, the Elliot Roger manifesto, we could read. That one is not like super, super long. I think that one is like 150 uh, typed pages. So, you know, that's one that could be a possibility. And I think I have read that in its entirety. 
it is interesting. I'd have to go, and we would have supplement from Dr. Welsing because we did two whole programs, Dr. Welsing, on uh, Elliot Rogers. She was so fascinated. He had a white parent, non-white parent, and then it, it was so explicit uh, in his manifesto in terms of him saying that he was so frustrated because he was not accepted. Uh, as I think he said it that, that uh, flagrantly, not being accepted as white, but that is... Elliot Roger, that's one. And I wrote, I have a blog post on that too. We have lots of supplemental information uh, to go along with that one. But yeah, do your studying. We have volunteers to narrate. Uh, did other folks have commentary? Yeah, Gus. Um, I wanted to uh, basically iterate on, because uh, I was listening to Ivy on her, uh, when she was talking about the Dr. Fox and uh, Blacks being cowards. Um, that's been an ongoing theme that I've been hearing this week. And even to revert back to sundown town, um, I noticed that when the author talks about uh, the whites arming themselves and pushing black residents out of these communities, it was, it was, all, it was described as, as if blacks were ready. And I'm under the assumption that these were ambushes so if, in fact, they were ambushes and black people were caught off guard, many of these cases, um, you know, how could blacks be cowards? Um, that, that's, that's just a thought that I had. Thanks. I guess the uh, number one uh, definitions are so important. I would just make sure to get a definition about what exactly is a coward. What does a coward do that no one else does? Uh, and then uh, from there, because uh, I've heard that discussed before as well. If someone just wanted to say that, you know, of anybody who is subject to victim of white supremacy, you qualify as a coward because you haven't solved the problem. Fine. That would be all of us. Long as it's clear. Same thing I said before this week. We're all equal victims. So fine. Long. I mean, now, if that gets us somewhere to just say that we're all cowards until we solve this problem, if that, you know, lights a fire and gets folks motivated to do constructive activity to solve the problem, well, then grant. But if it's just going to be to sit around and say, you know, niggers are cowards, I don't know, that's sounds like it could be counterproductive, even uh, name calling, really, uh, because, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, other folks have commentary. Um, can I be heard? Yes, yes, ma'am. Draftomania. Uh, yeah, I have a question. Now, regarding uh, Mr. Fox, now when Mr. Fuller says that we are pathetic, could this be compared to what Mr. Fox says about us being lazy and cowardly? It's just a question. I'm just putting it out there. And um, I did feel uncomfortable when I heard him saying those things. In regards to your question with epigenetics, um, as far as um, the information that's out now, uh, epigenetics, um, fear can be passed down through uh, through your genes and throughout uh, generations. So I would say yes in regards to the question of um, the illiteracy um, or fear of not reading. That's all I have. For sure. Uh, Certainly, Mr. Fuller has said that on a regular basis. However, with the lazy comments, since it was so, the context was so specific to reading, uh, to say that Black people are lazy with regards to 
reading. I'm not quite sure that that's the same to the general prescription to just say in the system of white supremacy, black people are pathetic. And those terms don't mean the same thing to say that you are in a pitiful position. It's a pitiful position to have someone threaten to kill you if you read. That doesn't mean to say, in my view, that is, you know, a totally different uh, statement. Like, I, I think that is totally accurate. And I do not think in any way that that is, you know, demeaning or uh, unduly criticizing black people. But I think uh, to say to characterize black people as lazy for not reading in a system of white supremacy, given the overwhelming evidence for centuries, I just I think it's beyond inaccurate. I think it's uh, it's just the same conclusion that the racist and oh, and the other thing that I would make sure I get in, if black people are lazy, well, then maybe we should keep white supremacy if, you know, maybe we need the cracker to keep us in line in order for us, you know, slipping off into shiftlessness. Maybe that should be thought of as well, if, if that's really the case. Yeah, well, look how far that's gotten us right now. That is the case. But thanks for answering my question. Can I hear Imhan DC, yes, sir. Yes, sir. White genetic annihilation. I I like to say that. Um, and white people are, again, making several species extinct every moment, every number of moments, they make several species extinct. However, white extinction is referring to white genetic annihilation or white people no longer existing on this planet in the perception of white people as we understand it now. So that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Much obliged. Out of many things that I have been thinking about this week, one of them is, did I hear a racist joke? I was talking to a white person. They asked about a specific white person. And I didn't say whether, you know, I like the person, dislike the person, you know, I hadn't made a comment yet. And they asked, you don't like this person because they're white. I didn't respond because I wasn't sure. I mean, they said it with a smile. So I don't know. I asked, you know, why did they say that? And they said that they were joking in the situation. And I mean, I don't really in any context talking to any white person for such a comment to be made. Uh, I is that a racist joke? Like, that's what I've been thinking. Did I just hear a racist joke, number one? And under what circumstances would that be acceptable? Like, if we were talking about, I don't know, Macklemore, name any white person, <laughs> Donald Trump, <laughs> like anybody. Uh, why would that be, or yeah, just, you know, what would that, under what circumstances would that be yeah, an acceptable non-racist response. And I haven't come up with an answer yet. That's why I've been stuck on did I just hear a racist joke? Like if if a white if you all were talking about any white person, you can insert the white person's name, whoever it is, male, female, what have you. Um and the response was and you didn't you didn't say that you disliked the person, you didn't say you didn't give any sort of indication in terms of your position on this 
white woman, white man, white child. And they came back and said, you know, Thomas in New York, Mr. Agnostic, <laughs> undrafted man, whomever. Hey, you don't like such and such because they're white? And you all have never had a conversation on racism either. So they don't know what your politics are. If you listen to the cows or whatever, you all have never had one conversation about racism and that was their response you don't like this person because they're white <laughs> what would you would you think yeah just what would your thoughts be i'd ask the question did i say that i would probably say well you know i don't like racist um so you know uh, I would probably leave it at that. I don't like racism. Uh, I saw a racist joke. I mean, it was pretty obvious in my opinion, uh, a blatantly racist. I happened to be watching on uh, Fox News, and they showed a segment with a man in Australia parachuting um, out of a plane and about to land in the middle of the outback. And uh, when he landed in the outback, kangaroos just came up and started punching at the shot. So, you know, they started laughing and um, they said, man, she got attacked by two kangaroos. I guess they left their MAGA home, that MAGA hats home, and everyone starts laughing. And um, I said, oh, they're making a Jesse Smollett uh, reference. And then as the segment went, kept going and uh, went to the next segment, you heard one of the people said, I guess they have Nigerian kangaroos. I thought that was racist. Wow. Justin Smollett, worldwide. I guess uh, Empire is pretty big, so he was big star anyway, and now even bigger. Uh, person, I guess you're on the Vope line. Uh, if you had a question, comment you wanted to get in. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. I hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, in terms of epigenetics, I do believe that fear can be passed down and manifested in different ways. One being the fear of reading because having knowledge, you know, for a time was seen. Having knowledge from a book was seen as a danger to yourself because you had it and white people thought you would use it against them. Um, and also, I think the shaming of victims as well. Um, we talked about um, Dr. Fox and the things that he said. And a lot of times, I know that's happened to me, especially in my family, and I don't know why, um, but if I say something happened to me. Well, you should have this, and you should have that. I'm like, well, something happened to me. Not The first thing is not, oh, I'm sorry I ha it happened to you. You know, um, you know, and that happened to someone else, a little child that I saw that happened to, and her grandparent, you know, well, you shouldn't have done this, you shouldn't have done that. I made sure I took the child aside to tell her that I was sorry that this bad thing happened. She got robbed. She was a little kid. Um, somebody stole her money on a field trip or something. So I said, I'm sorry that happened to you. That should not have happened to you. And I understand why you feel bad about this happening to you because no one should have, no one should do this to you at all. There is no excuse for someone doing this to you. And I know in the grandmother's part, she just probably wanted to prevent something like this from happening to her. And yes, you can give tips, but at least acknowledge the fact that something has happened to the person, 
you know, I, I have arguments with my mother about all the time. I'm supposed to happen to me. It just it's like blah, blah, blah. No, something happened to me. And people, for some reason, don't like to acknowledge that. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, rest in power, Mr. Hustle. I don't know what his real name is. Mr. Hustle. I pray that his work does go on. I'm not sure if it will, but it does take a certain amount of resources. A lot of black people just don't have those resources. And it seems like the black people that do have those resources are not visibly willing to do it. I'm not saying they don't do it. I'm just saying we don't know. It's, it's, it's not visible. Um, in terms of replacing black people, I think that, well, I know that's true. And you can see it even on your, your favorite team now, the Cavaliers. That's, I guess, about the name of the school where you attended. Um, the star, I guess, the point to USA State, because that's why I read that they won. The star is someone who would be easily identified as white. And, you know, that really happens on the basketball team. Um, in fact, I looked at the roster, almost half that team white, which is usually not the case, but, you know, go Cavaliers, I guess. Um, and that is all for now. Thank you. Uh, go Coon Man. Go Coon Man. I didn't, like I said, I don't know anybody on the team, coaching staff, any of that. So now that I hear that they have all these white players on the team, man, double down uh, on that. Wahoo, Wah, and Coon Man all the way uh, for the uh, title game. Uh, did other folks uh, have commentary that they wanted to share? Yeah, well, so, I apologize. He didn't, he didn't speak, right, Gus? Uh, well, I spoke. Oh, okay. Um, okay, I'll, I'll try to be quick. Um, you, you mentioned, Gus, you mentioned about a compensatory um, investment request, doing a, a program on that. I think that would be a very um, constructive program just on how to ask. Um, how, how to ask for for that and how to ask for a compensatory investment request and how to get over the fear and shame of that. Um, you talked about questioning whites as well. I don't remember if you were talking about making a program out of that, but I think that would be great as well, just learning how to um, just how to question them. And um, I also wanted to say I wanted to, to bring up how, you know, white white females are just, you know, so involved in white supremacy, I think about Peggy McIntosh, Robin D'Angelo, Barbara Trepanier, people like that, you know, they are out here and they have these books um, trying to confuse and successfully confusing um, black people, like, and, and just non-white people in general, just uh, the initiative, I think, that they took to um, to lead in, in, in white supremacy in this way um, by, by writing these books. Um, like, it, it really shows their major involvement um, in white supremacy rather than them just being passive or obedient to men or to, to white males or anything like that. Um, and you talked about tonight about how um, whites, how they, you know, they talk about racism a lot. The interesting thing about that is that there's no way that they can dominate if they don't do that. So this nonsense and these lies that they be talking about, oh, well, 
you know, white people don't have to think about racism and all of that. It's like, well, how, who in the world is dominating in any area that, that they don't have to think about? Like, that's the only way that you're going to dominate is if you think about it a lot, if you talk about it, practice it, all of those types of things. Last couple of things I wanted to say, and thanks for thank you to the man who, who let me go first. But um, last couple of things I wanted to say is that, you know, if, if, if black people are, are lazy, why are these obstructions to employment and reading? Um, and in terms of why, I guess, we have deficiencies in reading is, number one, we are taught by terrorists who are dedicated, as Gus would say, um, to practicing terrorism and to practicing racism. Um, and they, um, they, they undereducate and miseducate us, and they a lot of times teach us on less than our grade level, on less than a grade level that, that we are able to, um, to read on or to do math or anything else. So that um, has a lot to do with um, our deficiencies in reading and just in, in education in general. The last thing I wanted to say is that I just hope everyone has uh, the best weekend they can have. And I'll meet my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, God. Sue Africa. Add her name to the list. Sue Africa in the archives, 2016. Thank you to the mail caller for your patience. Yes. Uh, um, I guess, so I had a question in the comment. Um, I just wanted to know, I, I, I emailed uh, about a uh, his name is Dr. Jonathan Messel, and he wrote a book. It's called Dying of Wetness. Dying of whiteness, of racial racial dissentment, America's heartland. And I don't know if you had received that email. Yes, sir. Uh, I am familiar with Dr. Metzel, and uh, I will get working to see if we can get him as a guest on the program. Uh, thank you kindly for the guest suggestion and following up. Yes, sir. And my my comment is, um, the Washington D.C. area, and um, Mr. Nelly Fuller is a uh, he's a recent he's a uh, the uh, Carl Nelson show, and he constantly um, is the the courteous. Other black people have found that that practice of being black people has made an an, an astonishing impact on my on, on my interactions with black people, and I just want to say that you know um, I believe that one of the best practices that we can have with ending the system of white supremacy can be so simple as just being courteous with other black people and being patient with other black people. I live in an, in a, in an, in an area where you can go uh, maybe about two miles and there are black people who are making over $100,000 a year. And the, the the environment is totally different than when you go two miles, say, south, and 
it's it's Southeast DC where people are are definitely in in impoverished situations, and they don't make as much money in it. And you like that's why I asked you the question. You know what I'm saying when I when I asked you about about cross because you can't even cross the street in this area. You know when you go into the to the area, people aren't making as much money. It's, it's 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 crazy. So I I just want I just want to stress you know on this platform, please be the most courteous person in the room. Please be as patient as you can with other black people, and it definitely makes a difference in your environment, and it definitely makes a difference in in in. And in this end, and 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 this of white supremacy. That's all I have. Thank you, Gus. Can I be heard? Uh, Thomas in New York. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to say, um, blacks are not leaving. Uh, we are confused and deceived. Um, confused into not thinking the problem is that severe. Uh, it's severe enough to dedicate the energy that it would take to solve it, and we're deceived into taking, those of us who are taking this problem serious, we're deceived into blaming those who are not as if they could really fix the problem. You know, like, uh, it's almost like, uh, man, if, it, if, if just LeBron and all these guys got together, they'll fix the problem like white people aren't paying them. <laughs> you know, like, uh, so I think that uh, that that's one of the things that, 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 I think that the, the guy who came on Mr. Fox was all confused himself uh, into making that assessment. Um, heck, I was, when I grew up, I walked into my grandmother's house one day, and uh, my grandfather had the newspaper upside down. My grandfather was a number man, uh, but he was, he was trying to act like he was reading, and I realized it because, you know, I knew how to read, and I realized at that point he didn't, you know. I mean, I wouldn't call him lazy. He figured out how to... Um, make a life for himself and money, but you know, it's just um, he wasn't taught how to read. You know, how about that? Um, and I don't think fear is passed down from generation to generation. I think we are taught fear, uh, and white are the greatest teachers of it. They've kept us under a constant terror um, since they've come here, and that's the fear that's um, passed down to everyone. And I'll move my line. Thank you. Uh, Gus, can I um, add something else? Uh, 30 seconds, yes, sir, or 60 seconds. We got 60 seconds. Okay. Um, I mean, since I heard uh, Jesse Smollett being brought up and the outrage and how angry the uh, police department was and also the mayor of Chicago, I would like to see if the mayors of Waco, Texas, and the police chief of Waco, Texas, is also just as outraged that all charges were dropped and that uh, gangs involved shootouts. Uh, that's all I got. Oh, and Gus, uh, I guess I agree with you often, so I guess I am also an angry black man. <laughs> I reckon. I reckon. Uh, well, we will see. Coon Man, I think, will be celebrating... Uh, the beginning part of next week, whenever the title game uh, is Coon Man, Cavaliers, Wahoo Wah. Uh, if 
Labor Day, Cal's Yoga Retreat. I thoroughly appreciate it. I heard from some of the participants via email this week asking for vegan recipes and whatnot. So uh, if folks are interested, Labor Day weekend, that Thursday through the Sunday, uh, I would think West Coast, since we'll be doing looking at Florida for December 27th through January 1. If we have the interest uh, for Labor Day, if people don't already have activities and such planned, we will see. I'll uh, post about it, see if there's interest, and uh, I'll let you know as I have additional details. Labor Day, September. Let's see if we have the time and energy. Uh, with that, much obliged to all the folks uh, who joined us live. I hope it was worthy of your time and energy, live or archives. Uh, and we will be back. Just check the updates, Facebook page, Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy, even if you think what you heard on the correlation between cannabis consumption and psychosis, if you think that's all nonsense, well, fine. Still, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy supremacy. Uh, I know Dr. Welsing would encourage that. Uh, let's do all that we can. We have serious enemies, terrorists who are plotting our demise with each second. We should devote maximum brain power to solving this problem promptly. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that includes cell phone let's not be messing around texting and all of that that's a easy silly excuse uh to be stopped by daniel holtzclaw and fellow race soldiers badge or no creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.